it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Stamps.com, Simple Contacts, ProFlowers, and our contributors at Patreon.com. Exactly three years ago, we posted episode four of Astonishing Legends. It was our first multi-part series, as well as our first look at a historical mystery involving a world-famous unsolved disappearance, that of Amelia Earhart. It was a big show for us back then, downloaded nearly 10,000 times in the first two weeks. Both parts of that series have now been downloaded an additional 500,000 times. It's clear to us that Amelia Earhart's life and untimely disappearance obviously continue to intrigue people to this day. While back then we sought to uncover the most prominent theories about what happened to her and her navigator Fred Noonan, there was so much more to the story than we were aware of. So tonight, for episode 90 of our show, we'll sit down with Chris Williamson, creator and producer of Chasing Earhart, a forthcoming multi-part documentary series and an already available weekly podcast that just posted its 16th episode. Chris and his team have not only picked up where we left off back in 2014, but they're taking us all so far down the rabbit hole that the trip back to the surface could take weeks. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Obviously, I faced the possibility of not returning when first I considered going. Once faced and settled, there really wasn't any good reason to refer to it. Amelia Earhart. Join us tonight as we go way down the rabbit hole on Amelia Earhart's life and disappearance with our special in-studio guest, documentarian and producer, Chris Williamson. And we're back. And we're not spooky this time. Uh, hopefully not. I, I haven't looked in the mirror lately. <laughs> we're both spooky looking, yes. <laughs> you know what? I'm surprised we survived October, honestly. Yeah, forget the black-eyed kids. I was more scared of having to do another show without any breaks. <laughs> well, it would have had to been like an analysis of like a Scooby-Doo episode. Because, you know, we <laughs> well, were fried. <laughs> yes, that is true. But that is all behind us now. But you know what's not behind us? Our oft-mentioned Los Angeles meetup. That's right. Saturday, December 2nd, the Idle Hour Bar and Restaurant North Hollywood at 4.30 p.m. So be there, or at least try to attend using remote viewing. Free hat to anyone who can tell us what the code word written on the note that will be in my shirt pocket is. And don't try to get in my brain, because I'm going <laughs> to randomly pick a word out of the dictionary that day, cheaters. Uh, yeah, but seriously, we got a fair amount of people coming to this, and we'd like for you to join them, or us, or Oh, man, your writing is awful. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry about that. Uh, anyway, Idle Hour is 21 and over, but we promise we'll get a family-friendly meetup in Southern California going during the first half of 2018. In the meantime, if you think you can join us on December 2nd, please RSVP at our Facebook event page for it, which you can get to from our regular Facebook page for the show 
or our Facebook group page. And if you don't do Facebook, then simply email us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com with RSVP in the subject line. It's going to be a lot of fun. Rich Hannum is joining us, and some winners of the first ever Astonishing Legends trivia game will take home gift cards for free brand new movement watches, courtesy of movement watches. Oh, man, dude. All right, you know what? I'm writing this next time. It's time to introduce tonight's guest, Chris Williamson. And I think this, you know what, this show was a lot of fun. He actually came to the studio, which I love. Phone interviews are great, but he's currently based in Atchison, Kansas. And yeah. they flew out here. I mean, they had other reasons to be here, not right. just to see Blanket Fortiana, <laughs> but they flew out and we had him in-house. So that was nice. Chris and his team really go the extra mile, literally the extra mile. Yeah. Go get these interviews in person and record this because this is going to be a podcast of record and a documentary of record on Amelia Earhart with some of the foremost experts still around. Yeah, and for those of you that aren't familiar with her story, a lot of people sure they know, well, she took off in a plane and she disappeared. And that's true, but there's a couple things you can do to get up to speed. One of them is, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is you can go check out our first series on her. It was a little early, so we're not as polished as we are now. (laughs) But uh, episode number four and number five of our show are a two-part series on her. And they will get into the broad strokes of the more prominent theories, at least as of three years ago, about what happened to her. And also, whatever episodes of Chasing Earhart we mentioned tonight during the show, we're going to have links to those episodes in our show notes as well as to their podcast overall, which is already out. They're still working on the documentary. That's due to come out, I believe, in a year or so. And that's going to be a multi-part series, which is pretty cool. But their podcast is already being released. It started out bi-weekly, but it's on a weekly schedule now, which you'll hear Chris talk about in a little bit. Here's the thing. I could have talked to Chris for days. Oh, we, yeah. We well. could have really done like the long haul. I feel like we could have sat here for 36 hours. At well, least, we, you know? we did ring him out like a like a bar rag of, of information <laughs> because, as you can imagine, once you get fascinated, it's like so many of these guys that have researched it. There's something about this story and the legend and the persona of who she was, such a courageous person, such a mysterious ending with so many loose ends, at least a few big ones. That once the story's got its hooks into you, a lot of people have spent the rest of their lives trying yeah. to figure this out. And I think Chris has gotten that bug a little bit, and he is out to really document all angles and all sides of this as best he can. And we really applaud his efforts. But yeah, well, you know, we could spend another couple of days just picking his brain on this. Well, you know, she's a really rich topic. I mean, not only was she super courageous, she was a groundbreaking person, a woman in aviation at the earliest stages of aviation. She was and continues to be an inspiration to people all over the world who want to get into not only air flight, but space as well. And that's all before you get to the disappearance, which is like one of the juiciest mysteries of all time. You cannot believe how many different directions this goes in once you start taking a look at it. Now, your initial thought is probably, we can probably dismiss at least half of the hypotheses on the list outright with just a little digging. That actually would be wrong. Every single time you think you've got her disappearance figured out, It's like that first season of 24 where something new comes along that just blows (laughs) your mind, you know, and you don't know anything until the next episode. And it's not really over until the season finale, and the season finale has not come yet. No, that is true. And I got to say, it's really one of our first deep dives where we thought we were going to cover the legend, as this always happens. And it's like, well, it ends here at spot X, and then it fades off. It's like one of those desert roads that fades off into the sand. That's not the case, because when you come to the end of it, it's like, wait, this thing branches off. Do you go here with this theory in that, well, she was on this trajectory, she ran out of fuel, 
end of a story, we have a huge search area, but we got it narrowed down. Or do you go off on a totally different area, which is she survived the crash. And then from that point on, it's like, wait a second, there's all these interviews, which we'd never seen before, which open up a whole new world of possibilities of what happened to her. Well, there's a lot of really fascinating possibilities. And Chris will talk tonight about some new ones that we hadn't even heard. One of which even though it conflicts with my prior favorite, is a new favorite in terms of intrigue for me, yeah. which I thought was really fascinating. And it has a startling piece of evidence that none of the other ones have. And when you think about this, you think, how can we not figure this out? I always come back to, and we're making our list out for 2018, as we may have mentioned on the air. And one of the things on there, which we haven't gone through yet, so I can't make any promises because it's not up to me to make it by myself. Forrest and I got to work on it. We got to talk to Tess about it. But I am interested in possibly doing a show next year on MH370. And yeah, that's a big meaty one. Yeah. And, and it, don't get us disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's a huge plane and it's just gone. Yeah. And there's so many things about it that don't make sense. And to the point I just made in the Black Eyed Kids series, that has to, by definition, there has to be a complex reason that MH370 has disappeared. And we've got satellites, so much satellites that you have to worry about space junk when you leave this planet. Yeah. And there are no photos. The tracking information is lost. We don't know where that plane is. And yes, bits of it have turned up, but are they bits of it? And if they are, where's the rest of it? Why can't we find it? I don't know. That's a big, huge plane. That's almost 300 people. Amelia is admittedly a smaller target, but they knew more or less exactly where she was when she took off. It's, and, yeah, it's and all so, relative. You know, yeah. that's the thing. MH370... All this modern technology and one of the state-of-the-art passenger jets, and with all the technology we have now and how smart we think we are, we still can't find it. Yeah. And there just has to be a simple few things that are clicked off or not checked, not tracked, and it's just as big a mystery as Amelia. So, like I said, what's relative is like, okay, talk about the late 30s. And then happening then, it's like, well, they didn't have much technology then. Well, they had radio. They had some things going for them. Morse code would have been a good one, but she still ended up vanishing. And you could think like, well, yeah, that was a long time ago. It's like, well, just look at the things that weren't there for us to figure out the mystery. Yeah. And what if we told you that she could have had, using existing radio technology at the time, she could have had a radio system that would have made her trackable and she refused that system. What's the reason behind that? <laughs> right, a little foreshadowing there. Okay, well, let's get to the interview right now. So we're here in the studio with Chris Williamson and Forrest Burgess. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, thanks uh, for including me. Yeah, yeah. I just you didn't want you to be left out. Oh. Chris is the, I guess, wait, what are you, Chris? You're the producer, executive producer of the Chasing Earhart Project? I am essentially the project creator of Chasing Earhart. So I try to steer away from that term, producer or director. We have, you know, a producer for the project and everything, but I'm the one that kind of created this whole thing and started the ball rolling. Okay, very cool. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what exactly Chasing Earhart is and what it represents? So Chasing Earhart is essentially, uh, it sits in two parts. So we have a weekly podcast, started out bi-weekly, and now it's weekly. Basically, we, we interview different guests that are within the Earhart community, and then a lot of people that are outside the Earhart community. And we talk to those people about their research, their data, their analysis, whatever it is they have. If it's an author, we talk about their book. We delve really deep into it. We have the only dedicated Earhart podcast in the world. So we found this incredible person. We wanted to kind of delve into her life and her career and then, of course, the disappearance, which we'll get into in great detail. Simultaneously, we're also shooting a documentary that we started shooting in March of this year. And the documentary is uh, going to be released in 14 parts. So it'll be episodically released, and uh, it's going to be the largest scale documentary project ever put out on Amelia Earhart. We have right now approximately 177 guests 
that are involved in the project, multiple museums and organizations around the world that are involved in it. And we have more people coming on board every day. So the whole idea behind Chasing Your Heart is to talk more about how she lived and kind of discuss her life, her career, her accomplishments, and then, of course, the disappearance and, and talk about that in a brand new way. How long have you been working on this? Officially about nine years, but it's unofficially been all my life, really. I mean, Earhart sort of came into my life and the third grade seems to be sort of like the magic time when everybody sort of gets introduced to Amelia Earhart. And it's no different for me. You know, at third grade, I remember very distinctly, we had a, a history day project where we're going to be tasked with doing and our teacher put up all these different eight by tens around the room. And you have Lincoln and Washington, and you have Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King and all these di- individuals. And there was one individual that I, I saw that had, had no idea who she was at the time. And uh, she it was the famous bomber jacket photo of Amelia Earhart with her hands on her hips. And she's kind of smiling at you and kind of looking directly through you, so to speak. And um, I just kind of fell in love with that photo. And I, no one had picked her ironically after a few days. So I decided to pick her. And uh, so that was kind of the beginning of my unofficial research on Amelia Earhart as a little kid. And then about nine years ago, remember about 2008, I started doing pre-research on a project that I had no idea what was going to end up being. No title at the time or anything. I just wanted to kind of tell the story of the disappearance and tell the story of her life in a brand new way, in a way that no one's ever told before. And so that's what started initially the Chasing Your Heart project well before we ever had a name, a structure of any kind or anything like that. It was just one guy in a room doing research and that was it. You know, it sounds a little bit like how we started. No, there's two guys. Oh, yeah, just two guys. <laughs> in our own room. And it took a year to come up with a name. We're still not settled on. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm still mulling over different ideas. But uh, that's one thing I noticed, not just with Amelia Earhart, but it's all these things. Oak Island, it's the great mysteries of the world. It hooks people. And they may never have heard of it before, but there was something, an article uh, that they read that just fascinated them. Same thing with the Rick and Marty Lagina with Oak Island. They read an article that was in Reader's Digest. Yeah. As a kid, when he was like 11, he's like, that's it. From then on, <laughs> one of these days, I'm going to get literally to the bottom of this. And same thing with uh, Amelia Earhart. People, yeah. they spend their heard lives. About her. Yeah. They'll spend the rest of their lives trying to find out the answers. How many episodes will. of the podcast have you published so far? And how many do you have in the can? So right now, we're about to release episode 15 with Ellie Norman, who uh, is a fantastic example of what Chasing a Heart's become. She's a, a high school junior that has been researching Amelia Earhart's life for as long as she can remember. Um, and it's really interesting kind of the reach that Amelia has. So we're getting ready to release that to subscribers Saturday and Sunday goes live. And we have about 32 episodes in the can right now. So we've recorded, pre-recorded a lot of these episodes with these folks. You know, whenever we get a chance to just, you know, either go out to someone live at their house or whatever it is and we record, or most of the time we record it via Zoom or we record via phone call if they just don't do computers, we do it that way. So we've, we've got a lot in the can already. We could probably stop recording for at least a few months and still release every week with no problem. And how many people are you talking to overall for the documentary as well? So we haven't hit a number as far as how many people will actually appear in the documentary, but it's looking like it's going to be around 60 to 80 of those people that will be in the documentary. Most of the folks we have will appear in some way, shape, or form on both the podcast and the documentary. The idea behind the podcast really, which was essentially the original idea for the project, was for the podcast to sort of serve as the backbone of the project. So for instance, if we go out and we shoot with someone and we shoot for two or three hours and we can't put all of that in the in the actual documentary, what we can then do is we can have them on the podcast and we can go as long or as little as they want. We can delve as deep as they want. And we've been finding that the podcast audience and what will become the documentary audience are two vastly different audiences. So yeah. it helps just from a practical standpoint to have them on both. And it's been, you know, unilaterally, they've been, everybody's been pretty much doing both so far. At what point were you in the project when you heard our series on Amelia? 
So it was about halfway through, actually, into the pre-research of the project. So at this point, I had known it was about, it was 2014. At this point, I knew it was going to be a podcast. Podcasting had sort of exploded at that time. And so I knew I wanted to do that. Not a whole lot of overhead. I can kind of reach out to folks individually, privately through email and just make it work. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I needed to look for something that would be a good representation of what I wanted it to sound like, to feel like, all that stuff. And so I started just searching on iTunes, you know, Amelia Earhart. I just searched Amelia Earhart. And, you know, there'd be a lot of uh, one-off episodes, history stuff, biographical in nature for the most part. And then I came across you guys, and I saw it was a two-part retrospective series that you guys did on her. And I enjoyed the format and the way it was presented. And I knew back in 2014 that I had to reach out to you guys when the time came to start building a guest list and see if you wanted to do the show or do the project and see if we could kind of hook up and do something together. So that's where it started. It was a great representation. I loved the way you kind of looked at it and you didn't judge. You just sort of laid it out there. It was really kind of in the same vein as what we were trying to do. That's why I reached out to you guys. I think it was uh, earlier this year, back in March or February of this year or something. And then, you know, you reached right back out, which was, to my surprise, I was very happy about that. Well, we're always hungry for more information, and you're digging a lot more information up than we found, for sure, especially yeah. in considering we only probably put three or four weeks into our research on it. <laughs> yeah, but maybe at that time. It was yeah. also the first episode we did where we had our notes, of course, lined out and an outline, and, and it was starting to get pretty late, and we were getting exhausted. Yeah. And we didn't know what to do. We were like, okay, we're at an hour, over an hour now, you know, with that idea in mind of like about doing maybe 90 minutes, and it's like we've got so much more to talk about and yeah. what are we going to do? And then I think the thought occurred to us like, you know, you can make this two parts. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we said, yeah, let's not go through this chronologically and then chop it off arbitrarily because we think we're just at 90 minutes and that's what it should be at the right. most. Right. We can come back and say everything we wanted to, because of course all the good stuff's towards the end, hmm. you know, at least the more, uh, it's not any more important because, as you said, it's really getting to know the person and the motivations yes. and what they were like. Yes. Uh, she's an American icon. She's an American hero, Yeah, regardless of how she ended. And you have to know that before you get to the end and, and the whys and wherefores and the mysteries. So it was good coming ab about it that way. I think with this one, we, we realized that with a lot of topics, you start getting into it. It's like, oh my gosh, there is a Saipan Japanese capture theory. The What's Saipan going on? theory, yeah. And you said, I thought what was interesting, you said at the top of the show how that was one of the oldest ones out there. And I had seen the In Search Of as a kid, which yeah. I think they mentioned it. And yep. that's, that's where but I, I yeah, had completely forgotten I about yeah. it. I was most familiar with the castaway theory. And right. I thought, okay, well, you know, that's pretty much what everyone's saying, what happened. And especially at the time, I think that had been in the news more. And we went down that road of exploring it more. It's fascinating. Well, it's fascinating we're, we're click with me. It's the same thing like in third grade when you're, you're eight years old and you hear about like, wow, that is so cool. Why don't they know where she is? What happened? And you're just, as a kid, the world is all mystery and wonder, and you want to know the answer. And then what happens is usually in your research, you'll find one thing that really kind of lights that fire. And for me, it was Rich Martini's short documentary with yes. the World War II vets who were still alive, and many of them aren't now, but he's captured them on tape with these incredible stories. And again, I, I grew up uh, with my grandfather having served in World War II, and he was stationed on Okinawa. He was training for an invasion yeah. in, in case, because they knew what was coming up. And so that had always stuck with me and seeing these old vets talk about these stories. And, you know, we've had a few letters where people say, well, don't you think it's like one of those old tall tales where people, you know, just say, I won the war and I did all these crazy things. And my response to that is if you've ever met a World War II vet who's gone through combat, that is not the MO. Yeah. They don't want to talk about it. If they do, you can guarantee that there is something to those stories that has stuck with them ever since. And so seeing, hearing these stories, it's like, wait, it's not just one vet. It's three or four with several different interactions 
on Saipan that are pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. There's a large collection of anecdotal evidence, and people, when they hear anecdotal and evidence together, some people are just like, ah, whatever. And I guess I would be too if it was just two or three people, but in addition to those military officers, there was also all the Saipanese, and there were also additional witnesses in the Marshall Islands as well. Yeah, it's scattered all over those islands. It's a lot of people. But as it's often said, you should look at everything. Don't put anything off the table because you're just like, no, that's crazy. It's like, well, you don't know yet. Yeah, but you're you're (laughs) doing the deep dive, which is what I think is really cool. And you've found uncovered a lot of amazing information that we were not aware of. And that's what I love is learning new stuff. That's why we do this. And that's why we explore these kind of mysteries. But also we like to talk about the people. And like you mentioned about Amelia and how she lived, that's important. That's the key to figuring out what happened to her. Right. It's not just about the day she took off from New Guinea. Exactly right. And so when you want to drill down and find out what really happened, you got to go, you should go all the way back to the cradle to figure it out. And that's what you guys are doing. Actually, let's do this. Are you prepared to tell us the running list of the primary hypotheses? We'll talk about some of these lesser known ones you've come across since you started the show. But when people say, okay, well, here's the top five things or top three or whatever that people would say happened to Amelia when she vanished, what are they? Well, for us, it's a little interesting because most people will consider that there's only three or there's only even two, depending on who you talk to, main hypotheses that are being worked. For us, it's actually more than that. And the reason why it is that way is because we're doing something a little differently than everybody else has done. So you have multiple hypotheses. Obviously, you guys have covered several of the the main ones in the first episodes you guys did. And the main one is crash and sink. There's also a crash and float sub-hypothesis about that, which some people kind of believe in. They've also got the Japanese capture hypothesis, which is really one of the oldest ones out there since the early 1960s when Fred Gerner sort of made it popularized and opened that hole. And then you've also got... It's known as many things, the castaway hypothesis, the Gardner Island, Nicomoro hypothesis, whatever you want to look at. That's basically uh, based off of Tiger's research for the last 28 years on the island of Nicomoro. And you've also got another one that's lesser known, but one that's largely kind of shunned and thrown under the carpet. And that is known as the Irene Bolum hypothesis, which we'll probably get into a little later yes, on the show. And we briefly so, discussed that as well. Yeah. And we were a little dismissive of it. And since I've met you, I'm regretting some of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's one that sounds more outlandish, but we're going to also talk a little bit about eyewitness testimony and, and people's personal testimony sure. and swearing to things. And when you have the Monsignor mm-hmm. tell you that, like, no, no, I believe it's her, mm. it's like, what's going on there? So we're never totally dismissive. Again, we always say on this show, it's like, we're never going to tell you this Well, is except what of each other. <laughs> and I'll tell you exactly what's wrong with Scott if you email us. But the point is that we never, there's some things that make more sense to us than others. And, I, right. and that's, we love your approach because it's open-minded, it's fair, it's as unbiased as you can be, I believe, yeah. and then... Way um, less biased than we are. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's the thing is, we will always say, looking at what we've dug up, these things make more sense than others, but no one can tell you for certain. Sure. Until you find it. And right. Until yeah. you find her and the or the plane, so... Until the told you so moment. Well, someone, Somebody then, in the mix gets the told you so. No, even then, I was, <laughs> I was joking about that with the, with the doc photo. Yeah, you're joking and saying, like, I told you. It's like, let's all wait. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, until the pieces fall together, no one really knows. 
the Irene story might sound a little more outlandish, but what if there are kernels of truth there? And that's always what I believe is that nothing can be totally thrown out because there might be little specks of real truth in there that add to the story. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. I think for what we're trying to do is, you know, we have to include it all because that's the very nature of the project that we're doing. So in the very beginning of the project, I told myself, I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't be dismissive of any one thing, that we have to put the entire puzzle out there. The moment I decide to dismiss something just based off of a general bias or even a personal bias and the project fails. And we don't want to do that because that's what's so important and what's so different about the project. We're really going to look at this, you know, when it comes to the Irene Bolum case, we're going to have everybody take a second look at this and not be so dismissive and really just kind of analyze this. Like most folks are doing with the, you know, castaway hypothesis and the crash and sink and everything else. It certainly warrants that. And the people that have been involved in that hypothesis for many years, you know, like you guys have stated earlier, you know, died, went to the graves knowing like they know, like they know that she was Amelia Earhart. Or, you know, if she wasn't Amelia Earhart, she was connected in some way, shape, or form. And at this woman, there was much more than meets the eye to this woman. One thing I always try to make clear on this podcast is that the universe is a spooky place, and I'm sure everyone thinks I'm just talking paranormally, but the science of physics proves it's a spooky place, and Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson shows us why. Oh boy, here we go. (laughs) Here we go. What do you mean, here we go? You watched his second lecture from his course, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, The Spooky Universe, over at The Great Courses Plus. Yeah, I did, actually. And you're right. This stuff is mind-blowing, and it is spooky. Dr. Tyson shows us how the physics of our reality operate in really strange ways that don't make sense. Well, Scott and I love watching sci-fi, and especially the movie Interstellar, which deals with the twin paradox and time dilation. And Dr. Tyson explains how it all works. So why don't you give us a brief rundown? All right, I'm, I'm doing my best here. All right. As you travel faster, or if you find yourself in the vicinity of a higher source of gravity, time ticks more slowly for you than it does for other people. So if you took a set of twins, sent one into outer space in a fast ship, and the other one stays here on Earth... They would age at different rates. If the spaceship twin was traveling at 99.9% of the speed of light, his clock would only tick 4.5% as fast as our time here on Earth would. And when he came back after five years, he would just be five years older, while his twin would have aged 110 years. This phenomenon is called time dilation. Whoa. No, no, no. Don't. No Keanu impression. <laughs> I wasn't going to. Whoa. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> what I was trying to say is, if you love learning about this kind of stuff like we do, or learning about art, history, music, photography, cooking, the list goes on, you need to get your unlimited access for a whole month of free lectures, which you can now stream as audio or video with their new app, just by signing up through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Start your free month today. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. I did want to mention Rick Gillespie, yeah. who we did talk about in our series as well, who is a longtime investigator who has his organization, Tiger, yep. which is the- The International, International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. Thank you. See, this is why Chris is here. <laughs> <laughs> the International- He's yeah. heard it 10,000 times right. now. Yeah. And, and they look for lost, all kinds of lost planes, but this is their biggest right. project. He's a very prominent figure yes. in the investigation. He's convinced- and we're not going to put you on the spot with you. You need to maintain your neutrality as a manager of your project. But he's convinced that she 
was a castaway on Nicomororo, which we talked about, and that she passed away on that island. Sure. Uh, it was interesting when he was on your show because he had he made several proclamations, that one of which, of course, like my ears pricked up on was when he said uh, that anyone that believes the Saipan hypothesis was, is ridiculous. And then <laughs> well, he thought had that- had something against the Japanese as well. Probably. Right, and had something against the Japanese. And I thought this was interesting because it points to how a lot of people, and we've discovered this with all of our shows, there's always camps. Yeah. Uh, when there's a mystery, there's camps. And the camps- don't always play nice together. And we went to lunch before this session today, and one of the things that you said at lunch was how that you were connecting all these people. You basically become a network for all these different investigations. And initially, people were saying to you, well, if you're talking to that guy, I'm not coming on. I'm I'm not talking. But that's starting to even out a little bit, and everybody's coming out of the woods to talk to you or off their boats, as it were. And (laughs) and that's really fascinating to me. It reminds me of the police communication problem that happened after 9-11. I remember the one of the things they talked about was how the different departments weren't talking to each other. And yeah. the reason that New York is so good now at counterterrorism is because everyone has opened up all their channels and everyone's not sitting on, well, these are our leads and we're not going to talk to you and X is not talking to Y. And that was a problem. So the idea of, of you looking into this great mystery and connecting all these people, even if they're on different paths, and you had even said to us at lunch, there were a couple of folks with completely differing viewpoints who didn't know each other really prior to you guys interviewing both of them are now working together offline from you to see what they can share with each other. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably my, my, one of my most favorite things about the project is we're sort of becoming this kind of liaison for yeah. all these people. Because chances are, if you can think of someone within the Earhart community that's written a book or written a paper or done research or whatever, worked a hypothesis, we've probably spoken to them or they're on the schedule to be spoken to. So, well, you're becoming a catalyst for a solution, frankly. Because when those people all start working together, everybody's doing all these deep dives in their own directions. And when they start working together new information just has to come out. And the collective resources are going to generate a lot more conclusions. A lot more things are going to be found out. And I think that that's really impressive. And I'm not sure, frankly, how we came to be involved in it. So (laughs) (laughs) it's nice to be a part of it with you. And we're looking forward to meeting these people. As a matter of fact, we should talk a little bit about where your headquarters are now. Mm. You've done a lot of traveling. You're doing a ton of interviews. Every time I talk to you guys, you're all over the place. Where have you moved your base to now? Well, we're located in Atchison, Kansas, which is particularly special because that's the birthplace of Amelia Earhart. We actually happen to live about three or four blocks down from Amelia Earhart's birthplace, where the rumor she was born in. We do a lot of our interviews actually in the museum, a very good relationship with the people of Atchison, and uh, they do a wonderful job there of keeping the soul and spirit of Amelia Earhart alive. Every time we do an interview for the documentary that, you know, for someone we're hosting there, we, we sit them in the room where... You know, they're staring at Amelia Earhart's bed where she was born on. And I think it's a really surreal thing. It gets someone in kind of in a certain mood to really talk and kind of wax poetic about Amelia Earhart and what she means personally. So that's where we're at right now. And uh, we were obviously out of Southern California here originally. That's where we started. We idea was to sort of kind of hit everybody we can in Southern California and then up the West Coast. And, you know, uh, we've done gone to Nevada and, and Washington and all those other places and kind of hit as many folks as we could there. And then we moved out to the Midwest for Kansas. And Kansas is a great spot because it's kind of centrally located to, you know, Indiana and Philadelphia and a lot of, a lot of other places we got to go to. Texas, another one we got to go to. So we're going to be traveling around, but Kansas is our location for probably at least the next, I'd say at least till the project's completed in 2019. Okay. And also they have a festival every year, right? They do, yeah. This is going to be the 22nd Amelia Earhart Festival. Okay. Um, Jackie uh, Prejean, who runs it, and uh, Karen Seberg, they're wonderful women. They do a great job of, of running that festival and putting that out. And like I said, they keep that soul and that spirit alive. And this is a town that has, you know, 11,000 people in it. And every third weekend of July, you know, triple and quadruple that amount of people descend on 
Atchison for various reasons to do the festival. And they have the concert there and they have the best fireworks show you've ever seen in your life. We'll be there right off the Missouri River. But a lot of people come down for Amelia Earhart to do the panels and the, uh, you know, the breakfast with the books. They have multiple authors there. And it's, it's a really neat thing. It's a really great way to honor Amelia. That's very cool. Well, I would like to extend a thank you for inviting us to that. We're yes. This year, we're coming out for a panel, which I predict people will be asking us the least number of questions, but <laughs> there's, you've really got some well, amazing people lined up for it. We're looking forward to meeting those folks, speaking of connecting with people, by the way. So definitely awesome. yeah, a couple yeah. of well-known names and a great array of perspectives yes. from the hardcore folks of this one theory to the other and people who are in the middle or sure. looking at it, you know, again, with that uh, neutral stance, but trying to take and uh, analyze as much as they can. It's crucial to have that. I mean, we're breaking this thing all the way down to the very foundation, the very core of what it is. First of all, like I'm looking at people that are talking in forums and things they're discussing and they're kind of, you know, heated discussions with each other and talking about things like, uh, you know, burden of proof and circumstantial evidence and everything. Well, we have a lot of young folks who follow the project. And so what I'm going to do for those people and what we're going to do as a team is we're going to say, okay, let's break this down. What is circumstantial evidence? What does it mean? Why is that? So for that, we're bringing in prosecutors and bringing in defense attorneys that have no iron in this fire whatsoever. I don't care less about Amelia Earhart or the disappearance, but they're experts at circumstantial evidence. Basing that off of, you know, what's more important, circumstantial evidence, eyewitness testimony. You know, everybody's looking for the smoking gun. What is a smoking gun? Like we're, you know, we're breaking this all down for a lot of the young people that, and people that just don't know yeah. about Amelia Earhart other than, well, wasn't she the one that disappeared or wasn't she the real famous pilot? So it's important for us to have people that don't have an iron in that fire to come aboard and to kind of counterbalance those people that are super biased towards one hypothesis or another. Yeah. Right, right. Because on the, on the internet, that just turns into a fight. Generally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, it's a polarizing time right now. People are fighting about everything. So yeah, sure. it's nice to you know, that you're taking that broad approach. And frankly, I want to know about the differences. What is more important, circumstantial evidence? I'm delighted that you're doing that because I think it's pertinent not only to this, but to the pursuit of any mystery, honestly. Talking a little bit more about Rick Gillespie and Tiger, I think he just finished another expedition, right? Yeah, he wasn't out at this one, but uh, Tom King, Andrew McKenna, a couple of their notables. Tom's a good friend of the project. And, right, and, you had uh, him on the show. It was an amazing he was our, episode. Yeah. He was our inaugural guest. Please, my yeah. part is cringeworthy of that particular show, but <laughs> that was our first show. I was very nervous, but Tom was very gracious. And He's uh, an archaeologist, right? Yeah, he's Tiger's senior archaeologist. The guy's a wealth of knowledge on archaeology. Yeah, and, so he's uh, been there all over the island. Multiple times. It's a times. fascinating episode, re- yeah. regardless of your performance, which I thought was fine, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's great insight on what it's like to actually be there, yeah. because as he describes, it's very difficult and unpleasant. Just yeah. getting ashore. Yeah, it was, is. Yeah. I think anybody who's been on that island, uh, and, you know, Rick included, and, you know, it's a scary place to be. It, We're it talking can be, about Nicomoro, by the way. Right. Nicomoro is, uh, or Gardner, it was formally known as. Right. But it, yeah. it's an island that can be very pristine, very beautiful, but it can turn on a dime. And it can be very atrocious weather-wise and just atmospheric-wise. And I think it's only 15 feet or something like that, 18 feet off of above sea level. So it takes these huge poundings by the ocean, and it's a rough place. He's found a lot of artifacts there. You know, he's found a piece of metal. He's found bones. He's found the infamous freckle cream, which we talked about, which he said was similar to the one that she used. Right. And the heel of the shoe. The heel of the shoe and the bones, for example, that they believe were hers, but they're also lost. And so Mm. it's hard to verify, as it is with a lot of the stuff, unfortunately, that he's found. But a lot of people have evidence that it's hard to lock down as being definitive or, as you said, the smoking gun. Sure. I was most fascinated with that artifact that he was calling 22B1 or B2, I think, which he thought was the patch panel off her Electra, which we talked about Initially, when he first found it, more than later, it turned out. But his take on it all is interesting because he 
it's his job is doing that and, and working on that mystery. And, you know, he said right in your very own show mm. about how that's what he was doing to make a living. And that's great that he's that focused on it. So, right. and that's what you have to think about anytime somebody's exploring something is what's their primary motivation. And I remember in film school, they talk about that specifically with documentarians. Like, what's your goal here? Like when they made <laughs> Nanook of the North, the right. famous documentary where they staged Nanook taking the record and biting a vinyl record like he didn't know what it is when he knew exactly what it was. Well, yeah. yeah but the, of course, well, they shot the whole movie and it was on cellulose nitrate and it blew up. Because they used they used to use this explosive film stock and it the it film was unstable. Yeah. They, yeah, they shot the movie and it it completely exploded and they had to go back and reshoot it and then uh, <laughs> that was Robert Flaherty like the first documentary. Yeah, but like the, the point being though is is that yeah, I don't know what I my don't, point is. I, I know that's what I'm trying to save you from <laughs> and, and, you. and the rest of us out in the world. What but, is my point? If you're making a living off of a project like this. I think that's fine because you can't expect people to spend 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week on something. For years. And have another job, but also give us this information like you owe it to us. He's very transparent. That's one thing I really like about Gillespie's approach. Everything he finds and everything he talks about and everything he believes, it's all online. It's on his website. You can go through it all. You might not agree with it, but it's all there. Yeah. It's not hard to find what he has found and believes. Right. But you have to get past also just the very easy things of saying like, oh, well, this guy is coming out with all this. The stuff because he's writing a book. Well, yeah. well, yeah, he's an author. That's what authors do. They research. And yes, there's going to be a book at the end of it. Now, is he going to try and make a cheesy movie out of it or a decent documentary or a decent fictional film? Right. There's different motivations. So just saying like, well, you know, this guy's trying to sell a screenplay, but well, what is it? And you have to know a little bit about them and their character and their metal before you start painting them all with the same brush that they're out uh, for sensationalism or, or this and that. But if you do enough of the research, you'll kind of get a picture, I think. And so anybody that that checks into uh, these types of shows and the people that get into these projects, I think Chris will agree, you personally will start to get an image of where everyone's at. Sure. And their real motivations. Yeah. Yeah, There's different motivations for different people. I mean, it's one of the questions we always ask in in every interview we ever do is, how did Amelia Earhart come into your life? Because I I love asking that question because we get the most fascinating answers. And everybody gives you a different answer based off their background and, you know, their upbringing and their education and everything, everybody comes to Amelia for a different reason. One of my favorite stories ever is by a gentleman named Gary Quigg, who's an archaeologist for Tiger as well. He's also an Emmy award-winning producer and all that good stuff. And we just shot with him, did an interview with him a few weeks ago. And uh, his story is really interesting because he was, as a child, watched the Leonard Nimoy of course, uh, you know, episode <laughs> yeah. of, of uh, In Search Louis, Of. Yeah. And yeah, like you guys have mentioned on the show, and as a 12-year-old kid, he's sitting there watching TV and he's watching this thing and he just becomes fascinated with it. And he goes, you know, someday when I get when I get older, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to search for Amelia Earhart. And full circle comes around and he's, <laughs> he's on t- Nick Amaro. You know, that's what he believes happened. And so he joined Tiger and became a member and now he's searching for her. So it's a really neat story and we love hearing those kind of full circle stories like that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Paul Rafford. Can you tell our audience who he is? Yeah, so Paul Rafford was a fascinating guy. He was one of the smartest men really alive when it came to radio communication and just radios in general. And he wrote a book called Amelia Earhart's Radio that was widely adored and loved by Amelia Earhart researchers. And as far as Amelia Earhart lore is concerned, he's one of the most respected individuals out there. So Paul Rafford was just a very intelligent guy, very knowledgeable on Earhart and radio in general. And obviously he's no longer with us, but I had this idea to do a an interview with him. I think it was episode eight, if I'm not mistaken. We did an interview yes. with him and he sat in on the podcast um, a year after he passed away. And the way we did that is we acquired some audio from uh, an AM radio station. He did an obscure interview with back in, I think, 08 or 09. And it wasn't really you know, heard beyond that AM frequency or whatever. So no one really heard it. 
it was actually presented to us by a good friend of ours, uh, Doug Westfall, who's in Orange County here. He's local. And um, he presented it to us and said, you guys, you know, you can do this. That's so amazing. And uh, so I was listening to this thing and I fell in love with the way he thought and his fascination. And I had already read his book twice. And so I kind of knew who he was. And I thought, you know, how neat would it be for me to basically write and structure an interview around his answers and basically have him sit in on the, uh, on the podcast as a guest in 2017, yeah. a year after he passed. And so we did that and it was one of our most well-liked episodes. It was just a really neat experience, very surreal. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you do this and you're recording it, you know, as you guys know, you're editing and you're cutting and you don't hear the final thing towards the end. You start hearing some of it play back. And it's emotional. It's surreal because you're listening to someone, you're talking to someone, you're having a conversation with someone who no longer exists. Yeah. But they're so relevant. And when it comes to Amelia Earhart, it was an absolute honor to do it. And it's, we have more. We're going to be doing uh, what I call icon episodes, which are basically talking to pioneers of Earhart research. So we're going to do Fred Gurner. We're going to do, we just got a four hour um, audio interview from Dave Bellarts, who's the son of Leo Bellarts, who was the last person to speak to Amelia Radio Earhart. man on the Atasca. Right? Yeah, Chief yeah. Radio Man Leo Bellarts. And we're going to be doing that. And we'll probably split that into two parts, do a two-part episode in the same vein as uh, we did with Paul Rafford. We're going to do some stuff with uh, Frank Hawks and Netta Snook. Netta Snook was, she was Amelia Earhart's flight instructor. Frank Hawks was the man who took her up when she famously said, I was 200 feet off the ground and I knew I had to fly. Yeah. So we're going to have him, they're going to be guests on the project. They're going to be guests alongside all these modern, the Gillespies and the, you know, the Dick Spinks and all these people that we have that are involved in the project now. They're going to be with us. Well, I got to tell you, I thought the Rafford interview was really eye-opening because it was he had said something that I had not come across before, and I don't believe Forrest had either, but I, I don't know. You'll have to tell me. But he talked about the idea that goes back to the spy hypothesis, but not really, more mm. like she might have been asked by FDR because yeah. she and Eleanor were very close, right? right? Right. Very close friends, and she obviously knew FDR as well, but that she might have been asked to – since you're doing this anyway, maybe you could stray and take some pictures, or maybe it went as far as even the disappearance being a hoax sure. that Amelia participated in. Sure. And then as Radio Man, he pitched this whole idea that she was purposefully selecting outdated technology to make it harder to track down where she was. Exactly right. And harder to communicate with her so that disappearing was a little bit easier, was more of a smokescreen. Yeah. I thought that was super fascinating. It lent a whole new light to the possibility because some people, oh, dismiss the spy, dismiss this theory. It's ridiculous. But I don't think it necessarily is. I mean, she was known to be tightly connected with the Roosevelts. Yes. So it's not just, oh, yeah, they went to a tennis match together once. They, like, knew each other really, yeah. really well. And she was a very headstrong woman, and it, it seems like something she would be like, yeah, sure, I'll do that, because she also had no fear of yeah. anything. As yeah. you've said repeatedly, and oh, anyone yeah. who researches her for more than 10 minutes can tell. I think that's interesting. People are critical of how many hours of experience she had, and was she the great pilot, and maybe she wasn't so great, but she had this perseverance and determination that a lot of people didn't seem to have. And yeah. along with that went the fascination with who she was. But I just thought that that episode of your show was really, really compelling. A lot of them are. But I essentially inhaled like six episodes in the past <laughs> 36 hours. So I just remember thinking, wow, this interesting idea that they planned the whole thing out. Now, I can't remember if it was Rafford or somebody else that suggested that 
there might have been a plane switch in Florida. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Uh, the idea was that to tie into this flight in this side mission that she was going to be tasked with doing, that they couldn't possibly do it in that same plane. So that what they were going to do is they were going to basically have two Lockheed Electra 10Es, which she called as a flying laboratory. They were going to have two identical planes made, but one was going to be much more outfitted and much more hardcore. And what would happen was they would fly the first plane out to Miami, and then they would make the plane swap in Miami with this other plane. And this other plane would be the one that they would actually take on the journey, well, most of the journey at that point, because they, they had a little bit under the under their, their belts at that point. Why would they be switching planes? Well, according to Rafford, the plane that they were going to have was going to be just much more equipped for long-distance flight for over the oceans. It's going to be much more equipped with cameras and things. And they were actually putting the cameras together in a different location. So they would throw off the press, and they would throw off whoever else was sort of so kind of covering the story. Right. And this is his hypothesis, right? Hypothesis, yeah. yes. But his hypothesis is that the installation of the cameras would have been technically a covert operation, and that's right. part of the reason for making the switch. But also yeah. to make a plane more robust and be able to survive the flight, especially if you're altering course along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got to keep in mind, this was a flight that was, I mean, they were flying at some points for 12, 13, 14 hours straight. You know, they were going against a lot of headwinds and a lot of things that they didn't originally plan on doing. This was a plane that needed to really be built like a tank, so to speak. And then it had to be fully functional, but it also had to have the ability to fly great distances or long stretches of water. You mentioned the cameras, you know, they had to put cameras in a plane that would make it where they could take high definition shots or as high definition as you could get at the time. Did you know life raft? Yeah. Yeah. Right. They got rid of the the life raft equipment. Yeah. We had mentioned when we did the series that we did, the very short series that we did compared to you guys. But we had mentioned that at some point there was, I believe, an engineer that had stated that he had installed cameras in the plane. Yeah, he was stating, you know, I, I can tell you right where I put them and this is where they were at. And, you know, he worked at Lockheed, right? Yeah, he worked yeah. at Lockheed. And this is a guy who that's all he did was install electronics and things in planes. And so this is what he was tasked to do. And if you look at it a certain way, you could argue that if they put the cameras where the engineer said he put them, the fuel tanks would cover those cameras really easy. You wouldn't be able to see them. And there's even been rumor and innuendo that. Amelia was the only one that really knew about what was going on. Fred didn't know about it. There's also been flipped the other way around that really Amelia was not going to do this, even for her close friend. She didn't want to take part in a spy mission, but they thought, well, if we can't get to Amelia, we'll get to Fred. And they're already in the air and it's just going to happen. You know, Amelia's flying the plane, so Fred right. can do what he needs to do. Amelia will never know. They'll Fred, never be none Fred the wiser. being her navigator, Fred Noonan. Yes, right. who gets lost in a lot of this. And we're going to be covering Fred a lot. Actually, we have started already, but yeah, there's a lot to it. And so... It all comes down to what you think it is. We found that most hypotheses that are being worked on on the Earhart investigation have sub-hypotheses that are in them. So you start with the Japanese capture, which is really broad spectrum, and then you can go a dozen different ways depending sure. on what you believe happened. Sure. And a lot of people tend to do that. So really, each major hypothesis is sort of serves as an umbrella for all the stuff that's contained within. So it's it's been interesting for us to kind of explore not only the hypothesis in general, okay, this is the basic idea. So the basic idea for Japanese capture is that she was captured by the Japanese. She was executed on Saipan. Now, was she executed? Did she die of dysentery? There's different rabbit holes that go different ways. How many years was she there before she died? That goes multiple ways. So there's, yeah, there's different on, things. On your show, I can't remember who said it, but that she had started out probably in a hotel. And then at first mm. they weren't really sure what they were going to do. And then she wound up being moved to the prison and then yeah. she got sick. Garapan. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people believe that she died of dysentery. Some people that believe in the Irene Bolum hypothesis believe that she actually was a guest of, you know, in the, in the Imperial Palace for a time. 
and that she was basically kept there and kept as comfortable as she could be kept. It just depends on what you believe and what you choose to believe. And, and our role in this is just to sort of present everything and say, look, this is everything. And you decide, essentially, we're telling folks, you know, look, you write the story. You, right. You write the ending to Amelia Earhart. That's, because, that's what we like to do. We <laughs> thought we'd presented everything. Little yeah, did yeah. we know. It's sort of interesting. She really, this is a woman who really belongs to the world now. She belongs yeah. to history. The official U.S. government response is that, look, it, she crashed and she sank, and that's that. And I think a lot of people don't want to accept that. Someone as fearless as you mentioned, someone as heroic in his adventures as, as you mentioned, would want to or would end that way. They would just crash and sink in the ocean, and that's that. So a lot of people tend to want to you know, rewrite that story and, and kind of decide what they believe happened to Earhart. And the Japanese capture thing is, you know, none of it's pleasant, regardless of what you believe. Either she was executed or she died of dysentery alone on that island long after Fred died. Maybe, you know, who knows what order they passed in, if that's what happened. It's a sad state. And so people are just trying to, I think, write the best story that they can for what they believe happened to Earhart in the end. And and it's one of those things that we tend to do as humans. Yeah, the other thing that Radford said that I thought also was super fascinating was he had pretty much figured out this whole, again, it's a hypothesis, but I think he had backed it up with some facts where he had said essentially that FDR might have said to Amelia, here's what we need you to do. We need you to go and get lost, and then in the ensuing search, we'll be able to survey parts of the Pacific theater that we need information on because he was concerned that Japan was about to become a significant threat. Yeah. Rightfully so. People think, well, how do they know? Like, no, no, it was well known to U.S. naval intelligence that there's a huge buildup going on. Right. And he had said in his interview that there was a survey fleet prepped to operate. So it's kind of the whole thing where, well, during this search, that's when we're going to gather all this information. And the way that we're going to instigate the search is by having the person who disappeared disappear on purpose. Yeah. People was like, oh, that's far-fetched, and it's, you know, it reminds me of Ice Station Zebra. Speaking of uh, obscure movie references, I don't know if anybody's seen that. It comes up in The Hunt for Red October, too. We're going to help you find your lost submarine. Well, We're yeah. going to, it's a military trope in a way, but that's how it has to be handled diplomatically. Yeah. You can't come up with another reason to do that, and if you're going to survey the theater, the Pacific Theater, you need more than just an Electra flying over with two cameras in its belly. Right. So you you set up the circumstances. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense considering the time and the tensions between Japan and the U.S. and everything else. That, when he put it in that package, to me, it lent a lot of credibility to the overall idea that she was actively participating in something that she thought was going to help her country, and she may have been personally asked to do by the Roosevelts. She had the ability to do it. She's taking this trip anyway, theoretically. I think that's something he said, too. The trip was happening anyway. You know what? Just take a left turn at Albuquerque and let us look for you for a few minutes. Yeah. So we can get all this info. That's why she's taking the subpar radio tech, so she can lay low, and it's easier for her to lay low. And he also made the implication, being the radio expert that he is, he stated clearly that those calls that were picked up, I think, in Florida, there, there was no possible way with the power of her radio that those could have been picked up. And he said, which opens the implication that they were pre-recorded distress signals to keep the search going. All of that stuff really fits together really well, in my opinion. And that's just one episode of your show. And I find myself at the end of a lot of episodes of your show having the same kind of aha moments. And mm. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, that's really fascinating. It's amazing. And that's just one hypothesis. But something that you said to me, too, a few weeks ago when we were talking, you said something that was really interesting to me, and it, it's when we were talking about the differences between, you know, the castaway theory and the crash and sink theory and the, you know, the fuel problem and celestial navigation, which you've had people on, experts in every field talking about all these things, which is, by the way, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole on Amelia Earhart, this is the show to do it with, Chasing Earhart. But my point is that you said you had come around, I think, in a way to, 
I think it was a combination of all, a lot of these theories. There's a lot of things working together here, or everybody maybe has a piece of the bigger puzzle, which I thought is really interesting. Yeah, it's certainly a possibility that it could be a combination of things. And I think that's really up for the listener to decide and up, up for the, the person who's following the project to decide, you know, at this point, why not? Why could it not have been a little bit of a couple of different things that played into an overall larger scale hypothesis that you can kind of put together. So it's certainly a possibility. And I think our job as a team is to give people an aha moment every episode or maybe one or two every episode. And then, but at the same time, we want people to question different things. We want people to question this information. That's the whole point. Because questioning breeds creativity, which breeds investigation. And and that makes people kind of excited to kind of go out and do their own investigation. And we have a lot of people, I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, oh, we listened to one of your episodes and now we started to go out and do our own research. And that's awesome to hear that because we want to breed that. And a lot of young folks that were, are listening and following the project are doing that now, which is exciting. So it's possible. I mean, anything is on the table. I think it goes back to um, the inductive you know, reasoning way of we're looking at stuff is everything is inclusive. So everything has to be looked at. If you're looking at something like, you know, Sherlock Holmes would look at something, he puts everything on the table and he says, okay, everything, I want to see it all. I want everything. So that way, then you can start picking apart, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This makes more sense. You know, you kind of create what you want to believe and uh, based off of the evidence and the way that is. And that's what everybody's doing. They're building a case. You know, building a case is like building a house. You have to have a foundation. And from that foundation, you, you know, use your evidence brick by brick. You build your case. And that's kind of what prosecutors and defense attorneys do. They build a case for the jury. They present that case, especially if it's circumstantial evidence, which, you know, a lot of this stuff is circumstantial evidence, regardless of the hypothesis you're working on. People will build that case, the best case that they can to present to the jury, in this case, the jury of public opinion. So that's kind of what we're doing. You ever get in line at the post office and there's only a couple of people ahead of you and then you have to step away, like you forgot something in your car and then you come back and now there's 15 people ahead of you. Tell me about it, man. That used to happen to me all the time. And I know they didn't just magically appear, but it seems like they all just suddenly decided to get in line ahead of me and it could add another 30 minutes of waiting. Well, that's going to happen a lot more now that the holidays are coming up. Everyone's sending packages that require filling out abstruse forms, staring at my picture on the wall. Who's got time for all that? Not me. (laughs) Well, no one does really, but Stamps.com is here to rescue you from that because they bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your home. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then your mail carrier will pick it up. Stamps.com makes it so easy. With the offer we're going to tell you about, they'll send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage you need, and Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail every time. Print postage any day, anytime, because Stamps.com is always open. We use Stamps.com because it's the easiest and most time-saving solution for our business. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top right corner of the homepage where it says, heard us on radio or podcast, click here. And when it asks for a promo code, type in the word astonishing. That's stamps.com. Enter astonishing. Hi, I'm Christine, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show.
In episode 10, you had Robert Wheeler on. Yes. Can you tell our audience who Robert Wheeler is? So Robert Wheeler is a former helicopter pilot. He flew helicopters in the military for many years. He's pretty knowledgeable about aviation and just uh, aviation aircraft in general. He has a a partner named Fred Nicely who co-wrote a book with him called Amelia Earhart Betrayed. And this is a guy who is just a very interesting, knowledgeable, passionate guy about the Earhart case and the investigation. And, you know, they came up with this book that they wrote and they did a great job on it. And what I really loved about Robert is he's always evolving his hypothesis. You know, he basically had told us early in our email exchanges that a good hypothesis continues to evolve and change and you can add new information, take away new information. And as a matter of fact, at the time of episode 10, when we recorded it, the hypothesis that they originally stated and talked about in the book was different. It had changed a little bit. And so we went over that and broke that down in that interview and it just made for a real great conversation. Yeah, I thought that was cool that he was willing to update his theories. And definitely and that's the sign of an open mind. Yes, and, and he definitely does. And not being overly committed to an idea that maybe starts to lose support along the way. Um, sure. Here's what's interesting. And the fact that he was an experienced pilot, that was super fascinating to me. He seemed to be in agreement with Rafford and, and a lot of people about the sort of spy theory idea, which right. I thought was fascinating. But he got even more specific about possible targets for reconnaissance because he was talking about the truck atoll, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Did we talk about that, the truck atoll? Well, it's all part of the area and militarily very strategic. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because he had suggested that he thought, and people need to go listen to that episode, episode 10, but like he thought that it was possible that her Electra was either there or Taroa Airfield. Yeah, Taroa Airfield, yeah. And that it's either still there, buried somewhere, or that it's, you know, it was destroyed there. He said there were still Japanese aircraft there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that an operating airfield now? I believe so, yeah. There may be some uh, antique or leftover. Yeah, there might be some leftover aircraft there from way back when. And that's a hot spot for where people believe that she might have, you know, that her airplane might have ended up. He seemed to be in alignment, if I remember correctly, with the Saipan hypothesis or the part of her going to Saipan. But he disagreed that the plane went to Saipan. He thought right. that Amelia went there, but the electorate did not. Why would they take it there? Yeah. And that the eyewitnesses who thought it was destroyed on the airfield in Saipan were mistaken and that the plane would have gone to Taroa, which would have been a primary point of concern for Roosevelt because the Japanese were building a large, operative, you know, highly effective airfield in Taroa, yeah. and that's where it would go. Yeah, he had seemed to indicate that it, they might have split up from, you know, the airplane from the actual, from the pilot and the crew, the navigator, which in this case was Fred. Where is Taroa? That's part of the marshals, or? Yeah, I believe okay. so, yeah. It's hard to keep track of all this. I don't know, frankly, <laughs> how you do it. So I just think it's interesting because, and you guys might not even be doing this, but in the course of listening to everything you've recorded, part of me wants to put a board up with the, you know, the tick marks of yeah. who's coming down here and there. Because when you were right. talking about the complexity of the different theories and how they have subsets and sub-theories, it honestly seems like you could do a pretty complicated idea tree or we have a pyramid scheme going right now yeah yeah so it's, yeah. it's uh the richest it. person's at the top right yeah yeah <laughs> we have a pyramid going right now with everybody so we have like the japanese capture and then we have the subplots and then we have the crash and sink and a little little bit of subplot there not much yeah and then the irene bolum has got some subplots as well so. irene bolum let's talk about her because we talked about her in our series as well and like i said we might have been i think especially in hindsight now after listening to your show a little bit overly dismissive of it although i was not fully i was on board with the idea 
the problem that I have in terms of confirmation bias, and this was the first show where we introduced the That's idea not the only that, problem, but yes. It's yes, I have lots of thank you. <laughs> but the problem I have is, and I'll openly admit this, I'm going to admit this to our listeners. I mean, it's part of the reason that we have a show. We're fascinated with the mysterious, and we are fascinated with sometimes the more complex explanations right. or the more unlikely ones. And I think even though we've made reference to Occam's razor before, which everybody knows, the simplest explanation, blah, blah, blah. The thing about Occam's razor, and there's several people that you've had on the show that talk about it, and we've talked about it in multiple episodes with all kinds of, probably we've mentioned it on at least 10 episodes of different mysteries, be it Kelly Hopkinsville to Kecksburg to whatever. The problem with it is, is that I think people forget that the idea of Occam's razor does not preclude the idea that something complex might have happened. Yeah. That there can be a complex reason for a tragedy or a disaster. Like a good example of that for me is like the Titanic. It did not go down for a simple reason. It wasn't just that it hit an iceberg. It was the way that it was designed, how they dealt with it, the inability to see the iceberg. All of these things work together. That has a level of complexity to it. You know, but conversely, Forrest, you were saying that one of these theories, you know, that she went down and was captured by the Japanese is also a pretty simple explanation on the whole. Well, yeah, the whole mystery is not a lot different than any of the other paranormal type stories that we do. Because people's attitudes and their biases and how they approach it and what they become stuck on or... Or dismissive of. Exactly. Is not that different. Because if you look at it, then you have the Japanese capture theory. That's the paranormal cryptid Bigfoot UFO section where it's like, oh, that can't possibly happen. The Japanese would have done that. Why would they do that? They weren't taking people prisoners. Why would they kill a global hero? Well... Her getting captured and held prisoner, possibly executed or dying in captivity, is not that far-fetched. Yeah, it's the more sensational I think what people, some people say, though, the far-fetched part of it is the technical aspects of her getting in to a point where they could pick her up. Right. Well, that's the yes, part that some sure. of the hypotheses will say, well, there's no way she could have wound up there. But you... Chris, have talked to people who have clearly pointed out through fuel analysis and flight planning and looking at everything that there's plenty of ways that she might have wound up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. I think because that is the speculation part. We don't know what the last few minutes or maybe even the last hour of the journey was like for her or what direction she was going. So you have people saying, well, the plan was to maybe go northwest It's like, well, the backup plan is if they got lost, head back westerly and search for another landing spot. We just don't know. So at that point, it's people's speculations as far as fuel calculations and wind and what available land that she could see at what altitude. Was Fred hung over? (laughs) That's, yeah, I mean, there's all a ton of variables. So if you look at it, yes, maybe the more prosaic pedestrian answer is that she just kept flying straight, ran out of gas, crashed. Yeah. And that's the most easy thing for most people to accept because, again, there's some mystery to it, but not as much as, wait, is there a conspiracy going on? And that gets people triggered. Yeah, just the word conspiracy. The word conspiracy. It's like, oh, well, there's a conspiracy to cover this up. Well, possibly. We don't know. But my point is that this is wartime. This is the beginning of wartime. The Japanese had already invaded China. I believe, the, you know, the awful things that happened, the uh, Nanking yeah. incident. and. Yeah. This was not out of character for them to have done these things. And when you break that down, it's a military area. To me, it's not all that far-fetched and crazy. It's more of a movie plot. Maybe it's more of a wild tale. But look at all of World War II. Look at every war. Tons of crazy stuff has happened that turned out to be true. So when you hear something that's kind of crazy, it's that, no, she's living in New Jersey under an assumed identity 
We don't know the backstory, but it's been a while since we covered that. And we have a lot of listeners who probably haven't heard yeah. some of our older shows. Can you give an, an overview of the Irene Bolum? So Irene Bolum is a, is a woman, if you take out the Earhart part of her story, this is a woman who knew more prop to tail about airplanes than a lot of the people that had been flying them for their whole lives. And a matter of fact, the, when she was at the gala that Joe Jervis so famously recognized her at for the first time and recognized her as Amelia Earhart, one of the people there was noting that same thing. You know, how does she know so much about airplanes? How does this woman know so much about something that I've been working on my entire life, yet there's no record of her ever flying a plane, ever? So... That brings multiple questions to light. Was she Amelia Earhart? I don't know. That's not for us to decide. I think it's something that we're going to really talk about. Was she connected to Amelia Earhart? Definitely, I would say there's some kind of connection there in some way, shape, or form. How deep that connection runs hasn't been discovered yet, and it really isn't up to us to decide. We're just going to present everything we can. But I think Irene Bolum is a woman that a lot of people have largely panned since the disappearance case. And, you know, Joe Jervis and people like that that were just wonderful people that went to their graves just knowing you know, I know like I know like I know this is who she was. From our standpoint, our team, we have to honor that person's research and all their work. And people out there like Todd Swindell right now who's doing, you know, amazing work. And that's kind of, Todd was one of the people that I reached out to, uh, the first person I ever reached out to when it came to Amelia Earhart because I thought the Irene Bolum case in general was just such a fascinating case. And I thought, you know, when you talk to somebody like that, or when you're going to study something like that, you have to obviously start with the most knowledgeable people out there. And right now, you know, that's Todd. Todd is the guy when it comes to Irene Bolum. So wasn't there a lawsuit associated with Irene? Oh, yes. There's a book that comes out. It's called um, Amelia Earhart Lives. And it's written by Joe Kloss and uh, Joe Jervis, who, you know, a lot of the research is based off of Jervis's work. This book comes out and uh, obviously it plainly says this is uh, Amelia Earhart. This woman, Irene Bolum, is Amelia Earhart. This is what happened. This is her story. Irene Bolum gets wind of this book, and she's not too happy about the book. So she famously calls a press conference. As a matter of fact, it's in the Leonard Nimoy In Search of episode. (laughs) Yes. Uh, She famously, you know, holds the book upside down, stomps on the book, and says, I am not, you know, this mystery woman. I am not Amelia Earhart. So she goes ahead and she sues the publisher of the book and sues Joe Jervis and Joe Kloss for, you know, slander, for basically ruining her life and outing her as Amelia Earhart when she clearly is not, according to her. And so, you know, she sues and she wins. She gets a pretty good amount of money. When the time comes to collect that money and the, the judge says, okay, you've, you know, you've won in order to get your money, all you got to do is give us a set of prints and she drops a suit. Why? <laughs> if she's not Amelia Earhart, which is certainly a possibility, maybe she's not Amelia Earhart, she ha- certainly had very good reason to drop that suit internally. And so why did she drop that suit suddenly? Why is it that this woman who fought so long and so hard tooth and nail against this uh, publisher and these people that were trying to out her as Amelia Earhart, you know, you have this light at the end of the tunnel, you win your lawsuit, you clearly have your day in court and you're victorious, let's collect your winnings, and all of a sudden you just decide to drop it over some prints. So why is that? What was the book's hypothesis on how she came to be in New Jersey from the airplane? So Flying across uh, the world. Yeah, so essentially, (laughs) to kind of summarize it, is she was in Japanese custody and her return was negotiated. And what happened was once they negotiated her return, she was safely extradited back to the United States. And in order to kind of relive her life and to kind of take up her life again, she had to was really one of the first people that were in the witness protection okay. program, essentially. Right. She was told that she had to assume a new identity. She couldn't talk or communicate with family and friends anymore. This was it. If you're going to be extradited, it's essentially this for your life. Your life as Amelia Earhart, as Todd says, is over. You are dead as Amelia Earhart, essentially. Now enter Irene Bolum, which is why we call it that. Because this is a woman that she wanted to live out of the spotlight at that point. She was kind of had this out all of a sudden. Like, I don't have to worry about being famous anymore. I don't have to worry about all that stuff. I can just kind of fade into the shadows and just live my life as a normal woman. And so that's essentially what happens. And she's under the care of Monsignor Kelly, who you guys talked about a little bit in the first episode. 
And uh, this is a guy who was like her confidant, who was obviously in on it, who knew what was going on. Very famously later said, you know, he categorically denied, you know, anything. He didn't want to talk about it to anybody, but later famously said that, you know, she was Amelia Earhart. And I was tasked with taking care of her and kind of watching over her and kind of guiding her spiritually and helping her settle back into a new life as a new person, essentially. So, you know, you listen to the, everything I just said, and you listen to kind of the Irene Bolum stuff, and you listen to some of these people talk about it. And it maybe sounds really outlandish that this is what could have happened. But when you think about it, aside from the, the point that she can't really talk to her family and she kind of is dead in that aspect, it's really the best possible outcome for a woman that she didn't die of dysentery. She didn't die. She wasn't beheaded. She wasn't shot. She didn't crash in the ocean and die horribly and drown. And this is a woman who, yeah, she made it back. She made it back and she lived her life in obscurity in New Jersey. And, and I know it sounds, when you're listening to it, you're like, oh, I don't know. But it, when you start looking at all the facts, you think about it, it just is viable to look at this and think, okay, we have to at least give this attention it's due. And that's what we're doing. Is it speculated that some plastic surgery took place? Because that's one thing. We look at the photos. We certainly saw the mm. news conference. And you look at her and it's like, I don't know if I can even see Amelia in there. But yeah. So there was speculation that she did receive some plastic surgery. Yeah, there was some speculation on that. How prominent that speculation is, I'm not I'm not yeah. really entirely sure. I can tell you that, you know, she did have a little bit of a gap in her tooth, just like Amelia famously had, which was interesting uh, kind of in and of itself. By the time this book comes out in the 1960s, 30-plus years had passed. So, I mean, a lot can happen to someone in 30-plus years sure. physically to change. You know, I mean, a body structure and things like that, I know it's kind of a little different. But there's some factors you have to kind of look at. You know, is it feasible that she could be someone else? She could be Amelia Earhart. And, you know, Todd's done a lot of work as far as, you know, forensic technology and handwriting analysis and things. And you can just Google search Irene Bolum, Amelia Earhart, and Todd's website will come up. Mm-hmm. And you can look at oh, all the that. the handwriting analysis lines up, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, I it's, seem to remember that. It's pretty close. The other thing that I... Now, like, and I'm doing a little bit of an about turn. As <laughs> it's they, just your new favorite theory. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, hypothesis. no. I'm just saying what I like about it is how, to what we said earlier and to what you had said about the bigger picture, it's a theory that works with other pre-existing theories. Yeah. It still connects with Saipan. Sure. Which also still connects with the possibility of a intentional spy mission. Maybe she's a primary spy. Maybe she takes a detour. It's like you said, it's all of it. She detours on purpose so the survey ships can survey the Pacific Theater. She goes down pick the places that she landed. She is taken hostage. Now she's in Saipan, but she returns home and has to assume a new identity. The thing is, they all might work together. They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, the ones that say, okay, well, she died here or X, Y, or Z, or she never made it there, or even the one that says she didn't make it off of Saipan because she died of dysentery or was executed or whatever, that obviously doesn't allow you to come back and live in New Jersey. But it's interesting in that that one has a lot of connective tissue. My question would be, in their book, is there anything that points to Irene Bolam's early life? A little bit. Because wasn't there a child? Well, she did have a child, uh, Irene Bolam. The whole idea is there was a couple of different Irene Bolams, essentially. Is that there's, oh, and, right. And the right. idea was that she had a child who you know is still alive. Larry Heller is still alive right now. Todd, you know, went out and interviewed Larry and, and showed him some stuff and showed him the Have you guys reached photos. out to him? We have reached out to him. We'll hopefully get a chance to talk with him. We're building our Irene Bolum kind of retrospective <laughs> so series. So exciting. So we'll, we'll get to <laughs> Even that. Even if you get rejected. It's yeah. like, I love it. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, Larry Heller is an interesting person in and of himself. I mean, we could go on all day here, but it's one of those things that it's like, what you mentioned was interesting when you just said, you know, if you look at the Japanese capture hypothesis and then you look at Irene Bolum, you put them side by side. The only difference that's chief above those two is one, she dies on the island, and two, she makes it back and she lives. That's the only chief difference yeah. between the two. So if you're looking at the Japanese capture hypothesis and you're looking at Irene Bolam, 
it's not so far-fetched that what if this woman was negotiated to come back? If there's anybody that had the connectivity to make that happen, it would be someone who was very tight with the President of the United States and the First Lady. There's a very strong possibility that Jackie Cochran, who was also a very famous aviator and was very close friends with Amelia Earhart, was successfully sent over to Japan and Saipan to negotiate the retrieval of her friend, who was, you know, above and beyond as a friend, to bring her back. And there's a very close possibility, or very tight possibility, I should say, that, you know, there was a very small group of people that knew the absolute truth and knew exactly who Irene Bolam was. And if Irene Bolam was not Amelia Earhart, that she was tied to Amelia Earhart directly in some way, shape, or form. And that this all ties together. So the only difference is that one, she dies, and two, she lives. That's it. And so people will think, oh, it's such a far-fetched theory. Well, not really, because what's so far-fetched about the fact that she might have lived? I guess the interesting thing in that category would be if you're negotiating for her return, there's a lot of good reasons that this would have to be a covert negotiation and witness protection because we're pre-stage war. Mm. Any sort of agreement made between the two governments is kind of a mess diplomatically. Yeah. Because probably both governments know they're about to go to war and you're trying to make this exchange in the middle of that happening. That's a delicate diplomatic operation. it's also one where there's a a ton of controversy and conspiracy because there are many who say that the deep levels of government knew about the impending attack on Pearl Harbor and did nothing to stop it because it was more beneficial to us militarily on the long end to let that happen and get us into the war because at the time there was a lot of isolationists here in the U.S. in government who did not want to participate in World War II. So we've we've focused a lot in the discussion that we've had so far on these things that have connected because that it was something that we reported on when we did our series, you know, the disappearance itself. But the really cool thing about your project is that you guys are not talking to just those types of people. Right. You've had a lot of other interesting guests on. Who would be some that you feel like are important for our audience to know about? We're working with a lot of folks who aren't necessarily part of the Earhart community that we're thinking outside the box and we're building this guest list of people. And one of the people we could talk about is a, a young woman named Abigail Harrison, who is the founder of the Mars Generation. This is a woman who, you know, she's 20 years old. She's interning at the Kennedy Space Center, and she goes to college, obviously, and uh, she is hoping to be the first person on Mars. And this is a woman who has an incredible goal. She has a huge following on social media, and she started basically from nothing and kind of worked her way all the way up to where she's at now. She's NASA special guests, and she's commanding all these different people when she talks to, uh, does, you know, speaking engagements and things. And She's a woman that really embodies the spirit and the soul of Amelia Earhart. And I think Amelia, you know, we use that hashtag, our social media team does, Amelia would be proud. And I think she really would be because this is really her legacy. Her legacy is in Abby. Her legacy is in people like Amelia Rose Earhart, who shares the same namesake, 2014 completed the Round the World flight, and now is has the Fly with Amelia Foundation, who is doing incredible things with aviation scholarships and all these wonderful things. That's the legacy. People like Ellie Norman, who, you know, is going to be released as episode 15, who is going to do some great things with her life, I think, who wants to really study Amelia for the rest of her life, possibly take up the search, possibly crack the case that none of us and no one could ever do with all these different things that are out there. So, you know, we have a lot of people that are involved, you know, Anita Sengupta, who is, you know, a rocket scientist who works for JPL, and she headed up the team that designed the supersonic parachute for the Curiosity rover from Mars. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are women that are just doing, you know, incredible, wonderful things. We're just honored and blessed to be able to have them as a part of the project. And for them to say yes to a team like us that's doing something 
we're really trying to accomplish something really big, it's it's a big deal. Amelia Rose Earhart, not hard to find, but how do you find some of these other women that were inspired by Amelia? How do you discover them? You know, our team really looks for different individuals that kind of embody the, the spirit and the soul. We look around in different um, aviation-themed people on Twitter and people on social media that have a big following. We scour the news and the internet and, you know, newspapers and magazine articles and things, and we just kind of look for different people. And every time somebody find somebody that they think we should look at, my team will send it to me and say, hey, you need to look, you know, check her out or check this guy out or, or whatever and say, you know, this is a really a good example, a good addition. And then, you know, once I, I feel like that is a good addition, then we will go ahead and we'll reach out to them via email and say, hey, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. And I think the reason why we're able to start getting some of the larger name people like the Brad Meltzers and the Neil deGrasse Tysons and the people like that that are starting to kind of reach out to and make connections with, it's one of those things where people just, gravitate towards it because of the grassroots nature of the project. You know, the project is we're not this massively funded, financially stable organization that's out there, you know, just making documentaries. We're a grassroots. We created Chris Evan Films, which is named after myself and my son, building that around the Chasing Your Heart documentary, which was always going to be the first thing we were going to produce. And people seem to like that we kind of came from nothing and started slowly building all these people together and putting together the what is now the largest group ever to be assembled for a project like this. So, we knew we had to separate this project from different projects, and that's one of the major ways we're doing it. It's just just massive cooperation, this massive involvement from all over the spectrum. Having been exposed to the bigger picture and interviewed all these people and seen all of these additional perspectives and gathered all this information, and I could see you saying no comment at the end of this question, but like, how has it affected your beliefs about the possibilities of her life and, and what might have happened to her? The answer to that question is not yet. Because people ask me all the time, well, you got to know, you got to think something, you got to have leaning some way or another. The point is, if I do, and this is something that goes back to your original episodes, you touched on it in the very opening part of your of the second episode that you did on her. You're trying to be as, as non-biased as you possibly can, because you know that if you start to show your bias a little bit in one way or another, no matter what that way is, you start to stray, kind of like everybody else does. You start to kind of like neglect some of the information, or not look at it in a fair way. And I promised myself in the beginning that, look, we have to look at it in a way that no one's ever done before. And the way we do it is we keep that non-bias open. I can tell you that everything we've learned so far and everything that we're continuing to learn, because we still got almost two years to shoot on this thing, we'll have a lot more information at that point. It does open your eyes to thinking about, well, what if maybe multiple hypotheses are accurate about the disappearance? What if this is true based off of something that was kind of earlier on in her childhood that maybe this makes sense that she would have made this decision or made this choice or whatever? You really look at the whole picture and you discuss all of that. And it does help you make a, a little bit better rather of an educated guess as to what you think might have happened. But truthfully, we're just not there yet for me to be able to say, oh, I think it's this our job is just to present it. And then basically everybody else's job is to decide what they believe happened. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'll have an opinion like everybody else, but you know, it's just an opinion. Mine's not any more special than yours or yours or anybody else's out there. It's just, it is what it is. Oh, mine's special. Well, (laughs) Well, I certainly think so. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, we'll be interested to stay in touch with you as the project goes on. Definitely. I mean, obviously I think one of the reasons that you've got so many people being willing to participate in it is because, you're not drawing conclusions, which right. allows you to avoid alienating people that feel strongly about wherever they come down and, and yeah. that sort of thing. So, Chris, I wanted to talk to you about episode five, where you had uh, Bill Snavely on right. talking about the Buka theory. Yeah. Which, first of all, 
I didn't know anything about this. And secondly, it always makes me think of Buca di Beppo, <laughs> the restaurant. Case, yeah. yeah, so forget that part. But I think you should share this with our listeners. It's a lesser known theory, and it's very interesting to me. So what can you tell us about Snavely's idea there? Bill, this is a guy who, you know, is very meticulous in kind of the way he does stuff. Buca is not obviously a, a popular or well-known hypothesis. It's relatively new. Within the AR community, everybody's always looking for the next hypothesis, the next theory, whatever you want to call it, that you know they can kind of feed on. And um, Bill has done some pretty incredible math. He's got a lot of the information there. And essentially what he says is that when Fred and Amelia were flying towards Howland, they knew that they weren't going to make Howland. And so they make an educated decision collectively, whether it's collectively or whether it's just one off at the same time, we're not sure. But they make a decision to turn around because they know they're not going to make Howland. They don't know what's out there, what lies out there. They don't want to crash at sea. So they basically go to what they know. They're going to turn around and they're going to go back towards Papua New Guinea, which is where they took off from in the final part. Because the idea here is that, you know, hey, we can always refuel, we can try again, which makes sense if you think about it. You know, at a time like that, why fly into the unknown if you don't think you're going to make it? If you have reason to believe that that's a possibility, you're going to want to fly back and try again and maybe rethink things. So essentially what he believes is that they end up crashing actually in Buka, which is a very small area, and that there was actually a kid on Buka Island uh, at the time that they crashed. Uh, they crashed due to weather. At the time that they crashed, there was a really crazy, heavily powerful thunderstorms that were going on. And there was this one kid that kind of witnessed the crash. However, nobody else heard the plane going down because the thunder was so loud. It was such an incredible kind of loud weather movement at the time. So essentially they crash there at Buka. The plane as it stands right now is really badly covered in coral, but it sits in less than 100 feet of water in Buka. Wait so, a minute. So the plane... There's a plane associated with this, this theory. This is the only hypothesis that actually has a plane, which is really interesting. And this is what I think people need to look at. When this they is look right at, off of Papa, where they took off from. Yeah, really right. close. The idea was they were trying to make it back to that original location. They just didn't quite make it, whether it was they right, got hit by lightning storms, or something happened. And it, yeah. it, it, you know, it messed up the plane. And they had to, she had to put the plane down or the plane was forcibly put down by the weather. Whatever the case is there, they ended up crashing in Buka, which is, as Scott mentioned, it's really close to the yeah. original destination. Yeah. You know, the child who witnessed the crash landing had reported what had happened to all the villagers out there, but nobody believed them because they just, they well, oh. we didn't hear nothing. So it's, you know, that. you must be just hearing things or playing games, you know, as, as kids tend to do. Sometimes we don't tend to believe them. So that's what happened. The British cruiser, the HMS Achilles, was fairly close by at the time, and it picked up Earhart's call outs after her, her last transmission to the U.S., the Coast Guard, the Atasca, the Cutter Atasca. Doug has said that they published multiple books, special books, Paragon Agency has published multiple books on Earhart, and he's stated that— Wait, who's Doug? Know, uh, Doug Westfall, who's the okay. publisher, and the uh, he runs uh, Paragon Books and Paragon okay. Agency. And you know he published Paul Rafford's Amelia Earhart's radio and all, a lot of those other books. Okay, great. Um, Bill is the only one that's got a plane, an actual physical, tangible plane. So and if he's got the plane, why hasn't it been conclusively identified yet? Well, like some of the other areas, it's off limits to outside sources other than the indigenous peoples that actually live in that area. Bill has been communicating. He's actually the only person that's allowed to go out there and actually conduct a search. But financial standpoint, he needs to get the money together to do that search. They obviously wouldn't want to take any risks if that is, in fact, the plane. And it could very well be just a plane, not the plane. But... What's really interesting about it is there has been a local search ran from the indigenous peoples and the divers there. It's only 100 feet down, so you can get down there. It's not that bad. And they've taken underwater photographs, and they've Discovery Channel has seen them. Lockheed has seen them, and Lockheed has stated and told Bill that, well, we can't really confirm or deny that it's our plane or not. It's possible it could go either way. It looks like it could be right, but we can't confirm it because of the coral. Their plane, specifically an Electra 10E? They're specifically an Electra 10E. So you know, it could be an Electra 10E is what Lockheed has said. Yes, 
I can tell you right now that Lockheed has verified that the propellers and the hubs are theirs, which is interesting. But, you know, they're not saying it's our plane, but they're saying, well, the the propellers and the hubs, those are ours. So it's leading us to believe that it's a very strong possibility that it could be our plane, but we can't 100% guarantee you that. They're being very careful. Lockheed's very careful, notoriously, about this Earhart situation. And this is a twin-tailed, twin-engine plane. It is. It is a twin-tailed. That has been confirmed. It's a twin-tailed, twin-engine plane just off of Papua New Guinea, where they took off from. Yes. And it has Lockheed propellers and hubs. Yes. And it's in 100 feet of water. It's in less than 100 feet of water. Is it facing west? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. We'll find out more about it. Bill's book is actually coming out tomorrow. I asked that because it would be pointed at back at Papa if it was. Right. But I mean, who knows what would happen if you were crash landing, you might crash in any direction. Sure. Who knows curious. what happened yeah. or how, you know, or what kind of condition the plane went down if it spun. I mean, you know, you don't know. Yeah. Um, but I would imagine that with all the evidence that's out there and the fact that he's actually got a representation of a plane, I think this is something that should be at least looked at, if nothing else, to dismiss it. And, you know, Bill is... A wonderful guy, a wonderful interview, and, you know, he's one of those guys that really is just, he's a fan of everybody doing all the work on every hypothesis, and he doesn't care who finds her. And he's the first to say, like, hey, look, it, it might not be her plane, but let's look at this let's thing. Check it out. It's, this is an actual plane we can go check out that happens to match. And the main rub there is that they've had that local dive team go down there and actually, for what they could do, peer through some of the windows in the front part of the plane. And they have stated that they've witnessed and seen large aluminum or metal-like containers in that plane. Which would be all the Which fuel tanks. Which would be the fuel tanks, if that's what that, that is. That they used to have to crawl over to get to the bathroom in the tank. Right. Yeah, they had to wow. you know that. So here you go. You got all this stuff that starts to add up. And, you know, Bill was that's in That's it. No, this is the one, though. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, right? So it's like Forrest had alluded to earlier in the one episode where he's like, oh, these guys that review the cars, like, this is the best car ever. And it's got everything. And it's like, it really is. It really yeah. is kind of the same thing. And yeah. and look, you got to look at all this stuff. I mean, all these people that are working these various hypotheses that are out there that have worked them or are working them, you got to look at this thing as like a competition. And it is. It really is. Because everybody wants to be the guy or girl or the team that brings her home and solves this case. This is the most important, you know, missing persons case in the history of missing persons cases, really. I mean, this is a woman who is still considered to this day to be America's sweetheart. Amelia Earhart was an incredible woman that was, as you alluded to earlier, fearless. That's one of our big deals that we talk about. She was a fearless woman. She was an adventurer, and she had this spirit, this incredible will. And this is a woman that just people want to bring home. They want to see a finality to this story. They want to see that. And that's what we're trying to I want to hear, help do. You might not have heard this episode of our show, but I recently sang a few lines from a song by uh, Gorillaz. And I was told on Twitter <laughs> that I should allow Forrest <laughs> to do more impressions. Only if you are going to insist on singing. Well, the, I'm just saying that I would like to hear your Indiana Jones line. Because this is what I like about this theory. This guy's an outlier. He's over here. Nobody's paying attention to him. He doesn't even care if he's right. But he's got an airplane full of aluminum boxes at 100 feet that's been confirmed to have at least some Lockheed parts on it. What does it remind you of, Forrest? Indy, they're digging in the wrong place. Yes. (laughs) I love that. Here, look, you can dismiss this hypothesis quite easily. Yeah. I've talked to Bill, and I think he, I think he touched on the numbers in the podcast, if I remember correctly. And we're going to have him back on pretty soon, and we'll discuss it a little more in detail. But Discovery Channel is interested in talking to him. They're working with him potentially, hopefully, to maybe fund him. I, I would they've love to see— They've seen the photos. And, uh, yeah, they've seen the, the photos. The Smithsonian's seen the photos. Lockheed has seen the photos. Bill has, you know, he's on to something here. Now, whether or not this is actually Amelia Earhart's plane, you mount an expedition, you bring him out there, you make that dive— and you get absolute confirmation. You send someone through there somehow, maybe, or you try to figure out, take some high-resolution photos, whatever you need to do 
to make get absolute confirmation on this. And you either at that point dismiss it because it's been confirmed that it's not her plane, which Bill would be totally fine with if that's the case, that's the case. Or can you imagine if out of all these places, we pull this plane out of the water and it's in Buka of all these places? Yeah. Who would have thought that that's the case? It's, and it's right it's, there. It's, it's right, right there. The what if the plane ended up just miles from where it took off? Hiding in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight no, in less than 100 intended. feet of but, water. But you're talking about uh, taking off from Lay Yeah, Lay New Giddy because Buka and Lay are in pretty close proximity to each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is a, you know, you, you talk with Bill and you start to listen to what he's saying. And, you know, as we did in the podcast, you're thinking it makes great sense that if you guys are in a plane and you're flying and you have an intended destination and you realize that you're not going to make that destination, that that trying to make that destination a certain death, what are you going to do? Well, the, the next best thing you're going to do is why don't we just turn around because we can easily make it back. And yeah. Let's turn around. Let's rethink this whole thing and try it again. Yeah. It's a very common conclusion to reach. This theory doesn't necessarily play nice with the other theories that work in conjunction with each other. Because right. if this plane is sitting in 100 feet of water, how far is it from the coast? Do we know? It's very close to the coast. I don't have the exact numbers on me, but I think he goes at it in the podcast. It's not far off the coast. Well, so the implication would be then if they'd survived the accident that one or both of them could have made it ashore, which it seems like somebody would have heard about. So yeah. the next implication would be that they died in the crash. Did not survive the accident. Yeah. Which would preclude all this other Saipan hypotheses, hostage, the right. uh, Irene Bolum. Well, doesn't necessarily knock her out based on some other things that we've talked about. That's why it's such about. a fun wild card story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it really but is. it's really fascinating. Do we know how many twin-engine, twin-tailed models Lockheed built? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but there was only a few that were built in the 10 series like that. So, yeah. um, Are those specifically 10 series, those twin engine, twin tails? Yeah, they had 10 A's, 10 E's. Yeah, so there, That's was, there it. was a they few. They didn't have any other models that had twin tails like yeah, that. Yeah, that was it. And, you know, one of the things that the main factors in a lot of these is, you know, hypotheses is like, well, what other explanation could it be? What other Lockheed Electra 10 E plane could be in this area at this time? It could only be this plane. It couldn't be anybody else's. But what if they captured her and then they dumped the empty plane there? Yeah, well, well it, a good way to find out is if you go down there and you investigate this and you see because you know, there would be remains at least bones yeah if yeah. you see it you know if you see bones in there if you see the bottom line with the buka hypothesis is it's very easy to just go investigate this thing you don't have to look for the planes you know right where it is permission it's more about right and uh, bill's got the bureaucracy and that kind of stuff so you know you know so he's, he's just trying to raise funding trying to get funding and it's not a lot of money i think you talked about some of the numbers it's not a ridiculous amount of money i mean anybody who is passionate about the Earhart investigation could easily just go along with them, write them a check, have a film crew go down there with them, which most likely would be us because we're really tight with... We'll all go in on it. Yeah, we're real, we're, we're real <laughs> tight with Bill. You know, he's a close friend of the project and it's worth investigation and it's worth looking at. Here's the thing. You cannot just dismiss things just because you don't personally believe it's a possibility. And that's kind of what chasing your heart's all about is you know look we're not going to dismiss everything just because it's not possible to you it might not be possible to you but it's possible to a whole other group of people who even if you think it's completely nuts they believe in it and so you have to really sit there and really look at everything and really kind of break this down and compartmentalize and think okay we're going to put this all out and we're going to talk about it and we're going to put it out there and you know hey what if see nobody's gotten anything tangible nobody has a plane 
So this is a place that has a plane that happens to match twin tails, twin engines, happens to match roughly the size. It's kind of hard to tell with the coral built up around it, but it looks like it's close. Lockheed says the parts are theirs. Smithsonian's seen them and Discovery's seen it and people are starting to get interested. And but they're not pro- making proclamations on, they're tight-lipped about their reaction. Well, I think everybody at this point has to be, because every time somebody puts out a piece of evidence, you know, you have to be very careful with, everybody wants to, to solve this case and everybody wants to be the one to crack it finally. But the Earhart investigation has received a lot of backlash and a lot of attention and, and, you know, lately with, especially with the the lost evidence project that came out and everything. And I think if there's one thing that the lost evidence project sort of did is it proved that the entire world is still very interested in the fate of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And anytime any photo comes out, we joke about it. You know, we talk about anytime they release like 10 seconds of footage of Amelia Earhart standing at a microphone, not saying a word, it lights the whole world on fire. There's a reason why people are still excited about Amelia Earhart 80 years after she disappeared. It's one of the reasons why we ask that question of every guest. Why do you think it's so important? Why does this case matter? How long has this hypothesis been around? It's a little over 10 years old now, but that's still relatively new when it comes to Earhart. I yeah, mean, sure. Because you know, a lot of these sure. things are, you know, since the 1960s and, you know, the Castaway hypothesis is, is much newer than that, but it's been around for 28, 30 years now, something like that. So this is one of the newer hypotheses that are out there. He's been working it pretty much independently since then. He might very well be onto something. So we'll find out and we'll watch the whole thing unfold. And hopefully his book comes out tomorrow. It's called Tracking Amelia. And it's for people that want to see or read something a little different. I would recommend picking that up. For our listeners, by the time you, we're actually recording this a little ahead of time in a rare feat of organization. So <laughs> when Chris says tomorrow, he means a Saturday, November 4th yes. of 2017. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So by the time this airs, they can just go to specialbooks.com and pick it up if they want. And that's Doug's you know, agency there where they release the books. It's going to be something new. People really want to get like a new kind of hypothesis that hasn't been worked previously. And it's got a plane, man. I mean, that's if it didn't have the plane, I'd say it would be just maybe another hypothesis that right. yes, you should look at. But he has a plane that's, I mean, I say it again, under 100 feet of water. It's not very difficult does to- Does he have the pictures? Bill does have pictures, Has yes. he shown them to you guys? I haven't seen them, but I believe they're in the book. So we'll find oh, out. that's coming out tomorrow? Yeah, I believe oh, they're gonna, in the book. I'm going to buy that so hard. I'll hook you guys up with the book and you okay. guys can read all about it. And, okay, you know, cool. He's one of those guys that, you know, is very knowledgeable about it. And I love his attitude. It's, it's kind of like Robert Wheeler we talked to earlier. I love those guys' attitudes because they realize this is a team thing. Even though necessarily people aren't on the same team, it's all a big puzzle. And everybody's working. Like I, when I posed that question to Rick way back in episode three, is, is it possible that everybody's just working their respective piece of the puzzle and, you know, to kind of put this overall arc together? That's really kind of how you have to look at it for what we're doing. Well, it occurs to me now that we can put a link to the book in the show notes for this episode. So we'll do that. Yeah, definitely. I'll send that to you uh, today. Actually, I think it's up on the site now. So I'll send it to you tonight. We want to tell you about a really cool new way to renew your contact lens prescription and order the brand you wear that's fast, easy, and kind of fun and all at great prices. It's called Simple Contacts. Forrest, you just got yours, right? Yeah, and I was actually surprised how fast they showed up at my door. Now, to be clear, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. And since I haven't worn contacts in a long time, I did have to visit my eye doctor for that. But once I got my prescription, I just uploaded it and the customer experience and service was great. And if your current prescription hasn't expired or you just need to renew it and order lenses, 
You won't have to make that trip to the doctor's office. You can just use your smartphone camera and microphone or your computer to capture the same info as an office visit. So how does the self-guided exam renewal work with Simple Contacts? Well, I did download the app to my phone and checked out the process, and it was fast and simple. You just upload your current prescription or see if you're a candidate to take the eye exam test by answering a few questions to qualify, which services most people in most states. The test is recorded, then a licensed ophthalmologist in your state examines it carefully to make sure your eyes look healthy and that your vision hasn't changed from your prior prescription. The whole process takes about five minutes. The Simple Contacts eye exam is only $20. Compared to an office appointment without insurance, that could cost you over $150. Plus, standard shipping is free, the contacts are priced competitively, and Simple Contacts offers all the brands of lenses you're familiar with, including options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, and more. And the best part about all of this is this terrific offer for our listeners. To get $30 off your contact lenses... Go to simplecontacts.com slash astonishing and enter the promo code astonishing at checkout. And remember, if you have HSA or health savings account dollars that are expiring, you can use them by the end of the year. So once again, to get $30 off your contact lenses, go to simplecontacts.com slash astonishing and enter the promo code astonishing at checkout. Did you get invited yet to Marty Analysis for Thanksgiving? No, I just show up whether I'm invited or not. They've never really said anything about it. Well, are you going to make one of your famous pastries to bring over? Nah, you know what? I think I'm going to switch it up this year and bring over something that's really impressive, a fresh bouquet in everyone's favorite fall colors from Pro Flowers. That's a great idea. Yeah. A really nice bouquet makes a great centerpiece on any holiday table. But a long-lasting bouquet from Pro Flowers makes a really thoughtful gift for any occasion. Birthdays, banquets, anniversaries, you name it. They have some great floral choices with a lot of rich colors that really get you in that fall mood, like their best-selling cinnamon cider roses, or you can go with one of their classics, like a hundred autumn blooms bouquet or a dozen autumn roses and they arrive smartly packed in a really classy vase to boot. And right now, you can't lose, because no matter which bouquet you send, our listeners get 20% off of any of ProFlower's unique bouquets of $29 or more. You just go to ProFlowers.com and use our promo code ALPOD. That's A-L-P-O-D at checkout. These bouquets from ProFlowers arrive super fresh wherever you want them because they receive them direct from the growers and are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back, and you get to control the delivery date. You really get a lot more bloom for your buck with ProFlowers. Big, beautiful flowers, more stems for your money, long-lasting freshness. And remember, to get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more, go to ProFlowers.com and use our promo code ALPOD at checkout. That's A-L-P-O-D. That's ProFlowers.com and code ALPOD. Hello, Legenders. This is Chris Williamson. And when I'm not chasing your heart, I'm listening to my buddies Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess on Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. So here's an interesting episode I just listened to, episode nine, called Thousand and One Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, a conversation with John Hagedorn. And he's another podcaster who's got some really great, well, his catalog's not that different from ours. Yeah. A lot of great historical stuff. It doesn't probably get as weird as ours, but as the name states, it does deal with a lot of histories, legends, and mysteries. And so he's pretty knowledgeable about Amelia and uh, has taken that deep dive into a lot of the different angles. I think he's probably more of a Japanese prisoner angle like us. And that's not exclusively why we love him, but you know, we think he does a great job with this, but there's a couple of things that he mentions 
Well, one of the fun things, of course, that really made my ears perk up, apparently his wife is a third grade teacher, has been an elementary school teacher for years now. Yeah. And he was mentioned this story about a little girl in her class who's, it's third grade, so she's about eight years old, who had a bunch of different paranormal experiences. I don't know in class. I'll have, we'll have to get the story from him later. But hmm. she had an outburst where she claimed she knew where Amelia Earhart's bones were. Yeah. Which is pretty odd. If you're a 65-year-old guy or 75-year-old guy, I could see that <laughs> maybe you've been <laughs> studying it and not so mysterious that you'd be interested in this. But pretty interesting for an eight-year-old to know about that and make such a claim. Again, that just popped up. It's like, oh, there you go. That's, I should uh, ask my son uh, if he knows. He's just, he's just wondering where the Halloween candy is, <laughs> yeah, where, right. where you hid it from him. No, it's just, it was very strange. So that was kind of interesting, uh, who knows, kind of a paranormal thing. But a couple of other things that he mentioned. One was that there was a newspaper article that appeared in a, a Tokyo newspaper mm. claiming that uh, she'd been rescued. Amelia Earhart had been picked up by a fishing boat. Yeah or some boat in the area, it was more celebratory. John Hagedorn's point, the host of the podcast, was that she was well-known throughout the world, not totally by everybody in every corner, but definitely there were people in Tokyo who knew about her, and it was kind of a celebratory tone to it. Like, hey, yay, she's been found. We found her. Immediately afterwards, the article gets squashed. But he also said that some reports had made their way to the U.S., but mm. were quickly squashed. Sure. Do you, have you heard anything about that? The Japanese, they were surprised. This is something that obviously didn't happen every day, that this plane crashes out there or that this, sure. you know, this woman is captured and this man is captured together. And so the Japanese, the indigenous peoples of the Marshall Islands, and you know they were not um, adversarial to these people at all. They were not adversarial to uh, Amelia Earhart. They were kind of happy. They were excited that, you know, hey, they, I think they had realized that there was a kind of a worldwide search. You got to understand that this was a $6 million search in the middle of the Great Depression yeah. for this woman who was basically America's sweetheart at the time. And so I think that, you know, the world sort of knew about the search, that, you know, everybody was searching for her. And I think if a Japanese boat had been the one to pick up Amelia Earhart and to rescue her, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, I think that was something that was really celebrated by the islanders and the people that were there. Um, now, of course, with the Japanese military and the people that were kind of running the country at the time, that was a different story. So they yeah. had opposing viewpoints as to maybe whether they could be used for a bargaining tool or whatever the case was. You know, whoever, that's all speculation. But yeah, I mean, that kind of ties into how much did the U.S. government know that she kind of went down and, and how much did they right. did they want to sort of squash the idea? FDR was, you know, up for re-election. It wasn't going so well at the time. Things weren't going very good for him. So they couldn't have that kind of come out. And then that yeah. would just squash you. You lost Amelia Earhart. You know, this was, <laughs> and especially if it got out that this was something that, you know, FDR coerced her into doing or kind of pushed her against her will into doing that. Lo, you have to do this for us because this is it's a perfect cover. You know, if that were to have gotten out in the U.S., especially in the papers and the media at the time, they would certainly have reason to squash it. So yeah. it makes sense that that would have been the case if that's what happened. Right. But you haven't heard any stories of any extant or surviving copies of this article, right? I haven't heard of anything yeah. like that. I okay. think that if that ever did get out, it probably was pretty well squashed. And yeah, it probably I'm, was. It's one of those things that it's going to be dead and buried for a long time unless somebody somewhere in an archive or something could come up with it. Hey, you never well, you'd have know. you have to start it possible. Tokyo, right? You would have to. Well, no. That, a Japanese that, article yeah, initially, right? Right. right. That's the story is that it came out in a Tokyo newspaper. And it was picked up and brought over to the U.S. And I think that the U.S., they would have smashed it pretty quickly. In terms of archive searches, you would have to look for Japanese newspapers 
Tokyo well, specifically, well, or just Japanese newspapers that came out immediately following her disappearance? It was, yeah, yeah Tokyo he, would have been one of the bigger ones. Right. John was saying it was dated around July 2nd, 1937. Yeah. So it seems like that's a doable search. The question is... It's possible. You never but know. But again, yeah. is it like in some family's attic in Tokyo? Well, that's about, right. that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say, is yeah. where, where are you going to find it if it exists in somebody's scrapbook yellowing? Because it's not know. in the archives. Well, we, I, you know, my feeling is <laughs> well, that I think yeah. things can go in and things can go out of archives. Yeah. That's yeah. The question is, where are you going to find it? And right. uh, that's something that I think people will continue to do research on. I mean, this is a case that if the case never gets solved, I think it'll always be a case that everybody will continue to be fascinated by. Uh, oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, people tell us all the time as a people, we love mystery. We love solving a mystery. And if there's anything that's that's mysterious about anybody's disappearance or or anybody's death, we're not going to want to stop until we figure out what that is and have some kind of finality to it. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the nature of how people are. So yeah, that wasn't the only bit of interesting information that he mentioned in his episode. No, no, there was yeah. another, I was joking with Chris here, like if this were a modern movie here, this is the opening scene. Yeah. Because here's the story. Is it called the bottle theory? I guess the message in a bottle. Message theory. in a bottle. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty interesting, I'll, I'll let you tell it because it's, it's, well, I'll, set, it's, it's, I'll yeah. set it up here. We could talk about it. Another thing that John Hagedorn mentions is that there is a typewritten letter dated January 7th, 1939, coming from France and titled Report of Amelia Earhart as a Prisoner in the Marshall Islands. And one of the people addressed in the letter, in the header here, and I'm only going off just the audio that I heard, I believe it's Mr. Hepano or Hepanot, the chief of the far eastern section of the French Foreign Office allowed a writer to read some papers that were found in a bottle that had washed ashore near Bordeaux, France. And it was a bottle that was sealed with a cork and had wax dripped over the top of it to seal it. And there were several papers in it, but the idea was that these papers would be delivered from the French government or the French authorities to the American embassy there in France. And so most of the story goes that on October 30th, a Mrs. Bear, I believe, age 37, was walking on the beach near uh, sur sur May, I believe. Again, I'm going... Uh, en français! <laughs> no, yeah. we're not even going down that path because I'm just repeating the audio that I heard and I made notes of. But she was walking on the beach near sur sur May on the Atlantic coast, just south of the mouth of the Girard River. But she found a bottle. It's about half a pint size. And inside the bottle was several pieces of paper with French writing on them. And basically, it was a story written on this note by a guy who was owner of a large yacht, the Vevero, who claimed that he had been taken prisoner by the Japanese and his crew was killed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if in the accident or the sinking, but he was taken prisoner because he disembarked from Mealy Atoll, which is one of the theories of where she crash landed and was also taken prisoner. Yes. This is pretty, I know it sounds crazy. And again, that's why I say this is the opening of the movie where somebody finds this bottle and, and it, <laughs> it, it launches them on a great adventure and hopefully finds out the truth. But he's claiming that he was held prisoner in Garapan Prison along with Amelia and Fred Noonan, who he said was uh, her mechanic, but that's yeah. about all he knew. Yeah. yeah, he was taken to Garapan, and he happened upon Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. Yeah. He had no idea. It wasn't intentional, obviously. That's just where they took him. Right, it's where they took him, and people will say, like, well, how did he get to the other cells? Well, we don't know. Well, you know, it's, it's, not, it's a not, tiny building. It's a tiny yeah. building. Yeah. It's not Alcatraz. Close quarters. You know, yeah, it's close it wasn't, quarters. And it had, like, four cells. Four cells, and yeah. they're relatively small in size. Yeah, so he could just yell through the wall. He could yell through the walls. You, yeah, that's you don't know open. how they're communicating or not, but basically that's what he writes out on these several sheets of paper, and then... 
He is then forced to work on a ship, on a Japanese ship, heading towards Europe. And the idea was that he was going to drop several bottles overboard that, and hopefully they would reach France and that the French authorities or the Americans would go rescue these people that were being held prisoner by the Japanese because he said in his note that, well, if you just go in and ask or you demand to go see them, they're going to get executed because we don't have any prisoners here. What are you talking about? Yeah. And so you have to go in with stealth or undercover undercover. and try and ascertain how many prisoners they had because he was not the only European prisoner there or white prisoner, I guess. So he's referring to Amelia and Fred Noonan. Now, here's another interesting bit that was in the bottle. There was a lock of chestnut brown hair, (laughs) apparently, that he claimed was Amelia's. Yeah. And he said this would provide absolute proof that she was there. Because what will you need? You got to look at, you know, that story. If you look at that story and you break down that story, yeah, as you said, you know, it might sound completely crazy, but when you analyze a story, does it really sound crazy? It's, if you're if yeah. you're taken aboard this ship and you're trying to desperately communicate your capture, what's a good way that you might be able to do it? Well, let's stick some messages in a bottle and throw them overboard and maybe by the grace of God, it'll end up in someone's hands and it'll get back to to them and they can mount a potential rescue. Um, right. Now he's aware of a currents because again, he was captain of a yacht. Yeah, so this is a guy who would have known currents. Right. Yeah, so it's not just anybody off the street that just, oh, I'm just going to throw it in there and get, and you know, it, what's interesting is he threw one of six. So he yeah. threw several in there. If I'm captured with Amelia Earhart and I can somehow acquire a lock of her hair, you need something physically tangible, even right. back then. What more right. concrete, what more tangible thing can you gather to stick in a bottle along with a message than someone's hair, like if you want to go that route? So, I mean, it's a really fascinating story. Yeah. And what's really the, perhaps the most interesting of that story is that he was made out to be a crackpot, but then the record was sealed. Yeah. So why is this record sealed? Yeah, what happened sealed? to the bottle? <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to know. And Wait, we're actually reverse engineering that right now. Yeah. We're actually well, trying to find it. Yeah, yeah, no one knows. The The idea, though, from the typewritten letter was that it would be delivered eventually to the American embassy. Yeah. And if it was, it's gone. Right. Much like a lot of stuff that exactly. just gets mistakenly lost or whatever happens to the... But we're actually reverse engineering that story. We're trying to find yeah. out, you know, maybe any information we can about that message in a bottle to shine a different light on that Japanese capture hypothesis. And, you know, those are the fun stories. Like you said, like well, the theatrical in nature. They're the fun stories that you can kind of latch onto at research. Yeah, it's the bombshell because you didn't have DNA back then, of course, and they didn't right. know that. But just exactly as you said, if I put a finger of a glove in there or something or, you know, a, a part of her collar on, a, on her clothing, well, that can all be faked. Right. There's no problem. Sure. You know, there's no provenance with that. And it was a lot of tradition back in the old days for people to kind of lop off a lock of their hair to, as a keepsake, just for relatives and stuff. So it's not impossible to me because people say, well, how did he get to her, you know, in prison? It's like, well, we don't know. Yeah. It, but it doesn't seem impossible. Right. So if he's saying like, look, I'm about to be forced onto the ship as labor, give me a lock of your hair. I'm going to send a message out. I'll try and get us all rescued or try and get you guys rescued. Yeah, it makes so, sense, right? Again, and if it's somebody's faking it, it's a lot of weird details for something that old. Right, and why would this guy, out of all people, who has no relation, who it doesn't matter, Yeah, why would somebody like that go through all this trouble to fake it? And then if it was faked, why was it locked and sealed? Right. If it was just another crackpot and it was no big deal, then they wouldn't take the measure to seal it and to go beyond that. The story is interesting in and of itself, and it, it's just another piece of the foundation, another piece of the puzzle, another building block. Exactly. You know, and it's just one of those things you can keep building. And everybody does, whether you're on the castaway hypothesis or the Irene Bolum or the Japanese capture or the crash and sink. 
it's all building blocks and you're yeah. all trying to put together the best evidence you can. Um, and that's where we come in is we're collecting all that evidence and we're just, we're kind of presenting it. And that's just yeah. another piece of the evidence. That's just really a fascinating piece. And as you said, quite theatrical in nature. As you were alluding to, if you go believe these other theories where there's actually materials, if you believe the Saipan capture theory, mm -hmm. there is her valise there. If you believe the Marines that blew open the safe. Yeah. Her ID and her flight case yeah. is somewhere yeah. in government hands because that's who he claimed that he handed it over to. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Robert Wallach is one of the more credible people. All the Marines are. But I mean, you know, Rich Martini did a, a phenomenal job yeah. going out there and just, yeah. you know, recording these guys and getting them on video. And like you said, they're all very lucid. They're all very knowledgeable. Not these guys in particular, but a lot of these guys lied about their age to join the military. These are very honorable men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they had no reason to lie. For them to maintain that story all their lives, all the yeah. way up until they died. Yeah. So at least three of these soldiers independently, though, yeah. with their own stories. Yeah. So that's interesting. But, you know, just the bits of material out there that could potentially be a bombshell yeah. one day yeah. as they get unearthed. Like you said, some other photo that comes up. Yeah. Well, speaking of bombshells, we're going to let you go. We've kept you here a long time. <laughs> we appreciate you being here, but we can't stop without talking about the Jalowit Atoll yeah. photo. The, the photo. Went, yeah. That was at the center of the lost evidence. Yes. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what happened, how that story unfolded with the lost evidence. Yeah. So the story breaks during the anniversary of the disappearance which is really interesting. I had spoken with Dick Spink, who I consider to be a great guy. We just had him on. He's wonderful. He'll be with us next summer in Atchison. I love Dick's backstory. I love how he came into this thing. He's a high school science teacher. His famous quote is, you know, I didn't go looking for the story. The story found me. And it's really interesting how he came involved. And I'll let people listen to that podcast. You can hear all that. But, you know, it's a photo that's in the National Archives. It gets discovered by Les Kinney, who has been researching Amelia Earhart for 30 years and full-time for the last 10 years. I mean, he's been going at this. The guy's extremely knowledgeable about, about Earhart's life and her disappearance and everything. And they find this photo and, you know, Dick early on, months before the Lost Evidence Project came out, he had talked to me and said, you know, our project's really going to come out. It's going to change everything. It's going to shift tonally the whole search to Japanese capture. And really it did in a lot of different ways. But uh, the photo comes out, it releases during the, the anniversary of the disappearance. We had gone silent for that few days. And then, of course, as soon as we go silent, all hell breaks loose. This photo drops and everybody's talking about Earhart again. <laughs> we stayed silent. We came out a couple of days later and we talked about it. And I I've written some stuff on it. But the photo itself is, you know, we're talking about smoking guns. You're talking about bombshells. This photo, if it is proven to be definitively Earhart and Noonan, this is the smoking gun. Without pulling the plane out of the water, without finding remains, without doing anything like that, this is, for the first time ever, a photo of Amelia Earhart, Fred Noonan, and the Lockheed 10 Electra E on the Koshu in the same photo. Are you kidding me? That's insane. Yeah. yeah. That is it, if that's proven to be definitive. And so the photo drops. Now, there's two main takeaways from the lost evidence documentary in itself. And one is, it really is goes back to kind of like, you know, you all learn this in, in high school science, it's hypothesis 101. When you put out something, especially in this day and age, whether it's a piece of photographic evidence or physical tangible evidence or whatever it is you want to put out, you have to know that, especially with social media, man, as soon as that photo drops, there's going to be 7 billion plus people on the planet, they're going to go to work. Yeah. And they're going to try to prove that it's anything but what you say it is. Mm -hmm. If we're working a, a hypothesis together, all three of us, and we come up with a photo, it's our job as a team to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that there's nothing else it could possibly be in this photo besides what it is we are saying that it is. That's it. So if I'm saying that it's Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan in the Lockheed Tenney in the photo, we have to eliminate every other possibility because we have to know that everybody's going to throw those possibilities right at us as soon as it comes out. Yeah. And so that's essentially what happened. We live in a day and age, as you guys know, social media is Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. And people are going to get to work as soon as you drop something. We got to work. I you took got the to picture. Work. I put yeah. a whole diagram up, which I just sent to Forrest <laughs> yeah. to remind him. Yeah. But yeah. like I did a whole thing where I was like, well, this looks like Fred. This looks like Amelia. This yeah. is the coach. You guys did a great job with that. You know, and yeah. then we got wrapped up in a kind of an intense conversation with a Japanese blogger on Twitter yeah. who said that it came out of a book that right. was a tourism book that predated the incident. And then there were other people who got involved who said, well, this isn't, it's not even Jalowit. It didn't have this kind of pier, that yeah. pier, or it wasn't built at this time. And it just, yeah. it's like you said, it started getting deconstructed. Yeah, it'll get broken down. And this photo is a great concrete example of that. You know, they stand by that photo. I can tell you right now that they went back out to Saipan and they went to go and investigate the photo further. I know History Channel got out in front of it and, of course, saying that their historical accuracy is the most important thing. We have not heard anything from the History Channel since then. They did say they were going to launch an independent investigation of the photo. So far, no one's been privy to that information, so we don't know what the next step is going to be. But I can tell you this much. At best, if the photo is proven to be 100% accurate, you have a smoking gun. As far as anyone's concerned, you really do have a smoking gun because no one's got a plane. So that's the next best thing. At worst, if the photo is proven to not be accurate, it discredits the photo, but it does not discredit the entire hypothesis that's been worked since the 1960s. It's like anything in a jury trial case. One piece of evidence gets thrown out or is not admissible in court or whatever the case is. It doesn't mean you throw out the you don't just stop the trial and you throw out the entire case. Right. You get to argue the rest of your points. Right. It's the same concept here. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. And Dick, he said in our podcast, they stand behind that photo. The photo in itself, it's an incredible piece of information. And we're yeah. just excited to... If anything, it proves that people still really care about Earhart. And this photo took over the entire planet for a month or two. And it, it really is, it's going to continue. I think it's going to continue to be worked. Well, one thing I'll say that I said it at the time, you know, people will blow up and immediately say, it's been debunked. The whole thing's been debunked. Right. It, the photo's been debunked. And you'll see a lot of uh, websites claiming that as their headline, photo debunks theory. Well, yeah. the photo itself, no one's ever said that the photo itself is fake. What's in contention is when is and the, where? Yeah, what is the photo of? When was it taken? Sure. Not that the whole thing's been photoshopped. So we always want to make that right. clear to people because yeah. that's kind of the idea that they're getting they, and they dismiss it. It's like, well, yeah, it's a yeah, fake, the photo fake, is fake legit. Photo. The photo yeah. is a legitimate photo. It's just like Scott said, who is it of? Is it in fact Earhart and Noonan and the Electra? And when was it taken? So right. that's the, what's in contention. You know, and of course, if you look at it more closely, it's like, yes, it's in a travel log book, but it's a loosely bound with string old-fashioned book that there's one copy of, and there is a date, but the date is not on the photo itself. It's printed below the photo. You don't know when. That page could have been inserted at any time. So there's a lot of questions, I think, before you can throw the whole thing out. Well, and one of the things I thought was super interesting is when Dick was on your show, and that was a really interesting episode that I enjoyed. It's one of your more recent ones. Yeah, 14. Uh Most current one, actually. Most current one as of now. He talked about a lot of things as it related to the Japanese capture theory and that photo, and including evidence from locals who – he had mentioned somebody who said, oh, yeah, my uncle watched her for two days. Yeah. And – That gets back to all the anecdotal evidence that we covered way back three years ago when people said there's all these stories from all kinds of locals saying that they had crossed paths or they had seen this pale woman with broad shoulders, et cetera, et cetera. And with regard to that picture, 
the amount of coincidences going on, it's like your favorite quote about the coincidences when you were... You mean for Miss Marple? Yeah, from Miss no, Marple. No, it's the, uh, the one detective questioning a uh, suspect, and she says, well, you know, coincidences do happen, Inspector. And he said, yes, but they must not happen too often. Right. So in the case of this picture, we're talking about four coincidences in one photo. The coincidences being you have a guy in the picture who looks just like Fred Noonan. You have a woman in the picture sitting on the dock who has a pretty similar build to Amelia Earhart from the back and the haircut. You have a ship that is a dead ringer for the Koshu, which is the ship that supposedly went and recovered the Electra and Earhart and Noonan, so much so that it's featured on a stamp in the Marshall Islands. You can look at the stamp and look at the ship in this picture, and they match. And then at the back of the ship, there is a barge with something on it that looks a lot like an Electra Tinny. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you said, those are the four coincidences in this one photo. And in addition to that, they're at a dock. It just doesn't seem like all four of those things can be mistaken to me. And there's prominent skeptics, many that we had tangled with on Twitter back when the photo came out, who were just, no, this is ridiculous. This, there were all kinds of white people on the island at this time. Right. And we've had other engagements that were all very civil. There was nothing bad about it. But other folks were saying, well, the Jalowit Atoll, the dock didn't look like this during that year. And then, of course, the date of the photo being released. But like you said, the date is not actually on the picture there's a lot of really interesting stuff about it. But the bigger point is, and Dick Spink talked about this, and I think you were about to mention something about this, is how does a picture like this get out? Right. There's reasonable explanations for that as well, as far as I know. One is that if you back up and take the photo as being real, it's a real photo taken from a photographic negative, it's not a completely made-up Photoshop kind of thing, then it is of something from the area. Now, we just don't know the date, and they do look to be two white, light-skinned Europeans. And some skeptics have said that, well, those were possibly German workers because there were some German companies there. Yeah. Like, well, that was like maybe a decade earlier, to my view. What we do know is that it was very tightly controlled militarily by the Japanese. They did not want any white people there. Yeah. Only people who were local Chamorros, I believe, that were under contract. Now, speaking of that, how does the photo like that get taken? Well, there is one theory that there was a local, I think we people know his name. They don't want, I'm not sure if the family's still alive or if uh, there could be any you know repercussions from this guy or him getting bugged, but they do believe that there was a, a guy there who's commissioned secretly by U.S. Naval Intelligence to take photos under the guise of being travel log photos. Yeah. And that was what he was doing, because you get another white person there taking photos, I guarantee the Japanese, I've got something to say about that. It's yeah. not going to be good, especially taking it of a military ship. Yeah. So, so he's in yeah. essentially an intelligence asset pretending to be a tourism photographer. Right. And the theory is that that's how he got the photos out to be published or maybe back to Japan, is that right. we joked about this earlier, come visit beautiful Jaluit Atoll. And that's under that guise of how he was able to do that. Because if you do think, well, yeah, who's taking this picture? Well, to not raise suspicion, it would have to be somebody who blended in very well and was usually seen taking pictures. That's right. And this goes yeah. into the travelogue book which Robert Redford in Three Days of the Condors then thumbing through and finds a picture, and next thing you know, everybody's dead. Well, yes. If you want to get crazy conspiratorial, then possibly it was inserted. You don't know the provenance of it, but what we do know is that that photo, as a print, was found in the U.S. National Archives. Yes. 
in the Naval Archives and was declassified and had in print on the photo in text the location. And I'm not sure of a date. I think it just said Jaluit Atoll. I think it just said Jaluit, yeah. Yeah. It's intelligence. If you look at it like, well, it's just a travelogue photo. That's our that was fifth the coincidence, by yeah. the way. It said Jaluit, and then we have these four things featured in it that all are really close matches for this exact specific scenario. Sure. So you could say like, well, it, if you take it as just a travelogue, innocent travelogue photo, and there's some white people on a dock somewhere, but it is Jaluit Atoll. And it ended up in Japan, and it got acquired by U.S. Naval Intelligence. Why was it classified other than, yes, it is a target. You know, you, you see a picture of a low-level target Japanese utility ship. It's not a destroyer. It's not a carrier. It's not something of, of that great of a value other than maybe a seaplane tender. You could say, arguably, well, they're collecting everything. But it's just very strange that it was in the U.S. Naval Archives classified yeah. until recently. And that's where Les found it. Right. That what picks up where Les found it. That's kind of what was the center point of the documentary. And, and, you know, they have a lot more. Dick was telling me that the original, I think you said in the podcast, the documentary was supposed to, was slated to be four hours long. There's more. Yeah, they cut a lot of stuff. And they he did. Said a lot they of cut a lot stuff. of stuff. And he's a fascinating guy because he's a teacher, mm-hmm. right? But he has an aluminum boat business that takes him all over the world, which yeah. I went to his website. It's pretty amazing. It's a great business idea. He's, he's selling these boats to all different kinds of cultures that need oh, yeah. to go to sea for their business. Yeah, for to, various reasons. Yeah, 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 for various reasons. Yeah. And the other thing that I like that Dick talked about on that episode was the fuel analysis that the, I think it was it Kelly that did from uh, Lockheed, yeah. mm-hmm. who was the designer of the SR-71. He said that this fuel analysis would be the fuel analysis that trumps all the other fuel analysis. But yeah. this is a Lockheed yeah. guy. Yes. The king of all Lockheed guys doing a fuel analysis. And he mentioned in that that on page nine of it, he said, it is absolutely possible for this aircraft, the Electra 10E that Earhart had, to fly nonstop 4,100 to 4,500 miles, which makes, again, makes the Japanese capture hypothesis completely plausible. Sure. And that's what he says. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that is because there are other parties that will say the plane never could have made it there right. because of the fuel analysis. Right. Yeah. So if you're aligned with the man who designed the SR-71 and worked at Lockheed, then he is saying, no, that plane could have been in this territory. And I thought that that was interesting. Dick was a super fascinating guy. I really loved that interview. Yeah, he really is. He's a great guy, very knowledgeable. And, you know, he, he came into this thing, you know, he's been in about five years now at the time of the interview that we did. He's one of those guys just practical. Yeah. And this is a guy that, you know, looks at stuff and he says, we have to go out and, you know, he had to go out and find hard evidence. And that's exactly what he did. He went out and found the little pieces that they found on uh, Millie Atoll and uh, right. different areas that, you know, the guy went boots on the ground, metal detectors. I mean, they they went at it. They they yeah. went out there and they tried finding it. You know, he worked with uh, John Jeffrey at Parker Aerospace, who was able to get the, the financial part of it done for them. We just, matter of fact, we just talked with John about a, three or four weeks ago. So we'll have that interview coming up pretty soon. And um, they all went out there and they found this, this uh, you know, they started building, again, building that brick house, building that case, well, finding pieces of evidence. And he, yeah, the other thing I thought was fascinating, he said, was that she had a tendency to drift north, which yeah. I thought was really fascinating because that's the other thing that would make the Japanese capture the destination that leads into that more plausible because he pointed out that when she was headed for Dakar, she, they missed it by 150 miles and had to like camp in a field and figure yeah. out where they were. Yeah. 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 That was a neat story. Really, it, it gets back to all these different hypotheses that are out there. You can look at any one of them. You can take your pick and you can come up with a lot of circumstantial evidence and a lot of evidence that in confirmation bias, and if you want to look at it that way, 
to support what you believe to be the truth. This could be a whole year of datelines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it really, really could. <laughs> and and that's, that really goes back to, and it's funny, because it, but it's true. That, that's why, you know, is Amelia Earhart worthy of a dedicated podcast? Absolutely. Yeah, because I couldn't agree the more. data. I mean, this is a woman who had a professional career from 1928 to 1937. You're talking nine years of professional career. Uh, Larry Inman, who's one of our project guests, and he's a, got the largest private collection of Earhart memorabilia yeah. in the world. And he picked up a book on Earhart, read it, and he's like, oh, nine years, I'll knock this out in a couple, in a year or so, I'll have everything collected. 24 <laughs> years later, he's still collecting. Yeah. This I mean, is a woman who's- Over 4,000 pieces, right? Over 4,000 yeah. pieces. He spent somewhere north of three and a half million dollars of his own money on oh, this collection. Oof. The guy's got, you know, if you can think it, he's got it. And yeah. uh, he's putting together the Remember Amelia exhibit. That's a traveling exhibit that will go around the country. And actually, he's got trademarks for the US and Canada and Europe to go around, and then he'll house it somewhere after he's done with his run there. But- Fascinating guy, very knowledgeable about Earhart, very passionate about Earhart. These are the types of people that we attract to the project, and it's important. You guys just got hold of some exciting new stuff, right? Yeah, we got hold of some video. There was just a video that came out not too long ago. You may, may, people may have seen it of just her standing in a microphone, and it just kind of like oh, yeah, everybody I remember that. caught that video, and we're like, it was on CNN and USA Today, and just all this crazy stuff. And it just goes to prove every time there's a little bit of more of Earhart, people want it. But yeah, we got a whole some video. Actually, there's two videos uh, that we're going to be releasing. One is in conjunction with Paragon Agency that uh, we mentioned Doug Westfall earlier. Uh, we're actually going to be doing some shooting pretty soon with uh, Doug and Nicole Swinford, who's one of our guests, who's written a couple books on Earhart, has another one coming out. It's a video that was taking place, you know, way back before she did her world flight. And in the video, it's, it's just a lot of randomness. But at the very end of the video, you see the hangar and you see the Lockheed, you know, Electra Tenney, and then you see her kind of saunter into the hangar into that frame. The Tenney is in this video. Yeah, the Tenney's in the video. Wow. And uh, you see, you know, her talking to a couple of kids, and she's kind of shaking this kid's hand, and this kid's kind of like, you know, got his hand, because it's really bright out, I, I presume, it, sound, it seems like anyway. And um, the video cuts. It's not a lot of footage of Earhart, but it does two things. I've always maintained personally, like in interviews and things, that she was really great with kids, and that sure. she speaks to kids now, that you can have, do, or be anything you want. She set that example many years ago. But what's really cool about this video is we actually found the guy. We found the kid in the video. He's still alive. Oh, wow. And we're going to do a shoot with Doug and with Nicole. We're going to kind of talk about the video, and then we're going to actually interview him. His name is Dennis Gray. How many people do you know that actually met Earhart? You know, yeah. it's, it's pretty neat. And he remembers it pretty vividly, which is really cool. So we're going to put that video out. We're going to kind of produce it, and we're going to release it, and then we're going to co-produce it with Paragon, and we're going to put it out. We're not sure of the timeline, but it's coming pretty soon. It'll be before the end of the year for sure. Oh, very um, cool. Right before the world flight, it's going to tie a few things together, and we're going to really put a nice spin on it. And the other video we got is a video that's actually from a gentleman named Bill Zook in Canada. He was on our website uh, a few weeks back, and he called me right after he got on our website and was looking for an outlet for this video that he has. And he was telling me, I got this video of Earhart that... You know, I don't know if it's never before been seen or if only a handful of people have seen it. There's a lot of kind of uh, mystery behind the video, how it was taken, who shot the video, where it originated from. He got a hold of it, it wound up on his desk, and uh, he hasn't known what to do with it. He sent it to me. I've watched it once, and it's, there's a lot more Earhart footage in that video than of the original one. And if that's the case, then um, we'll put together a world premiere of that release that we'll put out in conjunction with the Chasing Earhart project. So we're starting to get some things. People um, are envious, really... Envious of the position you guys are in to have that kind of stuff coming in. That's exciting. We're getting yeah. stuff coming in too, but it's on a billion different things. We're... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's more about people that are legitimately possessed and don't have anybody to talk to about it. <laughs> but, so they call you guys. Yeah. Who are you going to call, right? <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's it must be great to have all this stuff coming in on such a historically important important figure. Like it's, it's a beautiful thing.
thing, man. It, it, when I started this thing, I didn't know what it was going to become. Make no mistake, we have a long way to go. I mean, we have, uh, like I said, we have 30-something episodes recorded right now already of the actual podcast. We're going to be releasing new content. We have close to 150 spotlight videos we're going to put on our YouTube page. We just launched a couple weeks ago with the first two. And we're going to continue to put out content so people can kind of meet these folks that are going to be on the project. They're going to know who they are. So in the fall of 2019, when this project drops, come hell or high water, they'll know who these people are. Right. And um, our goal is to just continuously release content, video, audio on the website. We have a very interactive website. You know, we have uh, people regularly monitoring the website. So chances are if you hop on the website at any given time, within a pretty reasonable amount of time, you can chat with one of our, our website team members and they'll actually chat with you about Earhart and about the project and everything. We That's try to ch- be, uh, chasingearhart.com. Yeah, chasingearhart.com. It was completely revamped. It was originally going to be kind of a, a website that would be like an online kind of source for Earhart. But we have to be very careful with copyright stuff and issues like that. So we recently kind of revamped it and turned it into a flipped it on its head and turned it into like an actual project based website. Cool. So it, it's the home of the podcast. And of course, we're on Audio Boom as well. We just recently got hooked up with them, you know, thanks to you guys. Oh, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, we're on Audio Boom and iTunes and Google Play and just search. If you just search and chasing Earhart Project, it'll come up great all over the place. So you can't miss it. Great. But back to the different hypotheses that are being worked, you could pick any one of them. Anything we've discussed today. And you can just go out there. Just I would invite your listeners, just everything we've talked about today, They've first of all, I would invite them to go back and listen to the two-part retrospective that you guys did. Start off with that. Then come back, listen to this episode where we discuss kind of, we kind of expand upon that and discuss everything that's happened in the last few years. And then pick a hypothesis. I don't care which one you pick. Pick any one you want. Well, they need Whatever. to listen to your show. Every episode yeah, yeah, you've yeah. released, honestly. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, our show is can be used as sort of a tool to work their hypothesis as yeah. you're going through it. And so can some of the stuff we have on our, on our website and everything. But pick any one and just go to town on that one. And just really think about, you know, look at it analytically. Let me know, you know, email us. Let us know at what point did you throw that out? If you thought, okay, this is no longer viable because of this, this, and this, or whatever it is, work these hypotheses, pick them apart. It's their job. It's people's job to do so. And you tell us what you believe happened to Amelia Earhart. I want to see your pyramid scheme because what I want (laughs) to see is like, I want to see the flow chart that shows how the different ones may or may not play well together. Yeah. Yeah, the we ones have that a, are dead ends and the ones that like, no, this all still works. These 10 can work together, but this one is on its own, that sort of thing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's the opening of seven, right? It's the bulletin board. Yeah, about the with string. all of the string oh, attached. Yeah. It really is. It, it's, it's almost identical to that. Yeah. It's like you have yeah. to, it's all connecting. You have one person at the center of it and it's Amelia Earhart, right? The center. And yeah. all these things connect and all yeah. these things work. And our job is to sort of get into the mind and to kind of just like, what was she thinking? And that's why I always ask, like, if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me ask, what do you think her mindset was here? Why is she thinking this? Why did she make this choice? Why did Fred, you know, make this choice? What was the mindset there? What was the morale? What were they thinking? And that's why we study her life. And that's why her life is so crucial because the decisions you make, you know, split second decision really are based off the kind of person that you are. And so she makes a decision based off of something that she just believes. And she was a fly by the seat of your pants kind of girl. She really was. She took chances. She was risky. But those are the kind of people that, you know, we read about in history books now as legends and icons. And that's why she is. It's because she took those chances. This is a woman that flew an autogyro, which was an experimental aircraft across the country after 15 minutes of instruction and promptly crashed it. Just the one who walked away from 11 air crashes. Yeah. She crashed 11 planes, guys. And she walked away in, 19, in the 1930s. Yeah. And this was really the infancy of flight. And, you know, the mind reels. It's like this is a woman who just – who if she was ever fearful of anything, she certainly had a masterful way of not showing it. And um, there's a reason why she's so prominent 80 – there's a reason why we're sitting here talking about her 80 years after she disappeared.
I'll tell you what, that was a lot of fun. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm really looking forward to doing that panel next year in Atchison and uncovering even more information. I've got to be honest, Snavely's theory about Buka has got me super intrigued, right? I mean, he's the only one that has an airplane. And that his plane is, sounds like the right plane. Yeah, and that is the crucial point here is that he has a plane. Yeah. Out of all the theories, he's got the most significant amount of evidence. Well, right now, I mean, it hasn't been right closely now. examined, but we have seen the pictures. We had the book. We haven't read it yet. We both just got our copies of the book, which we're going to have a link to. But in those pictures, there's three pictures in the book, I think, of the plane under the water and the coral. There's a lot of coral. And yeah. we've looked at these before, these pictures of coral overtaking something because Rick Gillespie's team has posted stuff like that too. And right. they're outlining what they think is a, a seat or a wheel. And for me, in the case of that stuff, it was very, very hard to make out. But there's some shots of what I'll call the Snavely plane, the Buka plane. Right. The twin tail section, yeah. the twin vertical stabilizers, it's pretty obvious. And Lockheed has positively identified the props. That's significant. But they're like, we're not saying it's an Electra, but it's an Electra. <laughs> no, but seriously, <laughs> yeah. I, we don't know if it's an Electra. The other thing I will say is that with the ocean, and I guess like uh, archaeological mysteries, but especially with the ocean, it just keeps reminding me of Flight 19. And yeah. weird stuff happens. You go looking for some TBM Avengers and you find one, but not with the group you're looking for. These yeah. are other ones. Yeah. Well, that's wartime. But there were way yeah. more of those than there were Electra. No, that's true. And so and they that's were all the, flying around there. Exactly. So, that's what I'm yeah. saying is that weird stuff happens, but you often find things you didn't expect. Yeah. That's my main point. Like yeah. how many shows you see, it's like we were looking for this. We actually found this. And it either answers some questions or gives you a whole lot of new ones. Well, maybe Snavely will find MH370. Well, <laughs> maybe you didn't find that, but you solved another mystery. Yeah, well, either way, this was a fun update on the Amelia story. And we are looking forward to being interviewed by those guys as well for the Chasing Earhart podcast. And then going to Atchison in July of 2018 for the panel. Here's the convenient thing about Atchison. It's one of the most haunted towns in the country. So, yeah, we might be doing some other stuff while we're there. That's going to wrap up our follow-up show on Amelia Earhart with Chasing Earhart creator and producer Chris Williamson. We'll be dark for two weeks for Thanksgiving and to make preparations for our Los Angeles meetup. After that, we're going to be back with three shows in a row for December before our customary two-week year-end break. As always, special thanks to The Ark. Please remember to support our sponsors, and if you'd like to attend our meetup in L.A. on December 2nd, RSVP on Facebook or via email to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. <laughs> I love that. Special thanks to John Bowler. Hi. Hi. I'm Christine. Hi. I'm Chris Williamson. I'm Dan. And, and I, I give permission, permission to Astonishing Legends, legends to use my voice however they see fit, galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.